0: This is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows.
1: It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal, just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of Twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast, you won't ever change. Some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly
0: Billy Horror Stories. And now here's your host,
2: Jerry and Tracy Polly, and their dog ninja. Hey guys, and welcome to our second annual Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. See. You would have to pay top dollar for those special effects smoke <laughs> podcasts.
3: You're welcome. And you get
2: that f- for free with us. <laughs> so tonight, you're going to hear us tell a little story. It's a little ditty about Jack and Diane. You may have I was going to
3: say about a man named Jack. Poor mountaineer, <laughs> brother, kept his family fed.
2: So you're going to hear us tell a little story. And then we have a boatload of friends that are going to come on and tell some stories right afterwards. So hopefully tonight... You will learn about a bunch of different podcasts that you may not have heard. They'll be doing little miniature episodes of what their normal show would be. Go subscribe to every one of them.
3: Every single one. But I have to interrupt you. Go ahead. That stupid song.
2: What stupid song? Jack
3: and Diane. What does sucking on a chili dog mean? That <laughs> is just grosses me out every time I hear it. Why are you sucking on a chili dog?
2: I have no idea. <clears throat> He obviously does not know how to eat a hot dog. Apparently not. Or he's got some severe daddy issues. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead. All right, let's keep this (laughs) PG-13, as some of our shows probably will not. Okay. Everybody knows the story of the Headless Horseman and Sleepy Hollow. That's from New York up in the Hudson Valley. We live in Kentucky, and for some of us that live, especially in the Louisville area... We also have our own Sleepy Hollow.
3: He's got one tooth.
2: <laughs> it's Ichabod Crane. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's got its share of stories that come along with it. So I thought we would share some of that since most of you probably don't know that story. Okay, it's perfect for this type of, of uh, little 10-minute story. It's in a prospect area of Louisville if you're it's in way out in the east end it's where the the ritzy
3: uh, people live
2: it's the expensive part of town Mm -hmm. but anyway sleepy hollow is like a windy two-lane blacktop road i've been on this thing it's been years ago the most common story that comes from this one is there sightings of a black hearse now keep in mind that there is a cemetery right up on that road so i guess It probably wouldn't be too crazy of a thing to see a hearse on the Well, no, not at all. It's actually uh, Herod's Creek Cemetery. Here's the thing, though. These sightings, though, are usually at nighttime. Not a lot of hearse out at nighttime.
3: True. And it would be hard to see a black hearse at nighttime.
2: Right. So the stories usually go something like this. So you're driving along, and you notice some lights from a car in in your rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. No big deal. But then this one starts speeding towards you. It gets extremely close to your bumper. Dude, I would be freaking out. So much to the point that it causes you to speed up. And in some of these cases, the cars kind of run off the road and down an embankment. And most of these cars say, as they're kind of, you know, either running off the embankment or they're just getting their wits back about them, the car pulls up and passes them and it's a hearse.
3: oh man would you freak out over that
2: i probably yeah i I
3: was so freaked out
2: and like i said i've been on this road and and when i talk about embankments some of these are like 30 feet down i mean it's like there's guardrails and stuff up over the steepest parts Mm -hmm. but this is not a place where you would want to run off the road by any means and another thing that these people are saying is they they lose time somewhere along the way it's like that's interesting They'll think that this incident took like ten minutes, and they'll notice two hours have passed somehow so oh. when they they can't have any kind of uh um uh, recollection of where this time would have went. All they remember is the incident which seemed like it was just a couple of minutes long,
3: so this isn't people that actually went over a cliff or hill
2: no it's it it is, but I mean they didn't die because it's it be good. hard for them to you know tell their story
3: yeah well, no, I know I'm just saying if they did go over the cliff or whatever, and then they probably are uh. Disoriented.
2: Yeah, that would cause. Yeah, that would that would be a cause to feel like that you've lost some time. But that's not Man, what it is. That this is, is
3: scary.
2: Is... Now, the second most popular story is about a bridge. It crosses Height Creek, H-I-T-E, Creek. Mm-hmm. There used to be a covered bridge there. Now, now it's the it's like you wouldn't even call it a bridge now. I mean, because it's just like regular road with some guardrails. Oh, okay. You don't have that kind of bridge. Uh So it doesn't have the big girders and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But at one time, a covered bridge used to stand there. And some people say that there was another bridge even before that. We're going back to pioneer days. Off of that bridge, the legend says that mothers would come and throw off the bridge their unwanted babies. Now, some of these were children with disabilities. Some were from incestuous relationships and some of the children that were just punks. Little behavior, you know, bad behavior kids that the parents just didn't want to deal with anymore. That's so awful. They just And the
3: poor babies they can't help that.
2: Now these babies or children would eventually find their way to the Ohio River because Herod's Creek and everything there all and Heights Creek all run into the Ohio River eventually. So legend has it that if you go there on a quiet night and the moon shining down on the bridge, you can hear the screams and cries of these children. Aww. But in a twist, you can also hear the cries of their mother, who made the, cho- the horrible choice to toss the children off of the bridge.
3: So then they're regretting it. They're yes. looking for
2: their children. For eternity. And last but not least, there is a section of this part called the Devil's Point. These rumors started in the late 70s, okay, but supposedly there's a satanic cult that took up the area uh, and you could basically hear and see like bonfires mm-hmm. out in the woods. You could hear these chants um, almost like you would if it was uh, Native American, or mm-hmm. but these, these kind of uh, come across more of like a satanic chant. And like a ritualistic chanting and screaming could also be here from there. They said that the screams came from, supposedly anyway, from sacrificial animals. And to top that off, plenty of neighbors have said that they've seen figures in hooded robes roaming around the neighborhood.
3: That's uh, frightening.
2: It is. So anyways, that is our little story, our little contribution to the halloween episode like i said this is uh, jerry and tracy with hillbilly horror stories we, we got a lot of different uh podcasts that are gonna be playing the feed so they may mm-hmm. be unfamiliar with us okay but um this is going to be a nice long creepy episode full of some of your favorite podcasters telling you cool little stories so enjoy and uh we'll see you soon mm-hmm.
4: Hello, fellow ghost story lovers of hillbilly horror stories. I'm Tony Brewski from the podcast Real Ghost Stories Online and The Grave Talks. Jerry asked me if I would share with you a ghost story. So I thought, well, what's, what's one of the best ghost stories that I have from this year? And this is a piece of one of them. It's an interview that I have wanted to do for so many years. And I've been asking about for year after year after year. And finally this year, I was—I got a chance to, to do this interview. It's with Lauren Dio, who is one of the main reporters who went around with Ed and Lorraine Warren and the Lutzes. And if you guessed it, you know what I'm talking about with the Amityville horror. When it was going on, when everything was happening, this is a first hand account it's not hearsay. It's not, well, this person told me this. is This is what happened word for word, firsthand. What you're about to hear is an account of the night called the Psychic Sleepover, where the investigators went back into the Amityville Horror House to investigate the paranormal activity reported by George and Kathy
5: Lutz. Take a listen. The Lutzes started inviting people to go into the house that night Mm -hmm. Uh, the folks at Channel 5 invited uh, some of the uh, another reporter from WNEW radio which was our affiliate radio station sure the Warrens invited a couple of people so all of a sudden instead of it just being the Warrens and Channel 5 you know we had a cast of about 20 people. Yeah. Which was not necessarily conducive to um, a great seance.
4: (laughs) Sure. It becomes almost a tour than it does a seance at that point.
5: Well, yeah. I mean, I remember showing up that night at the house and it was lit up. All the floors were lit up and... um, Alex Tanaus, who was um, part of, um, he was part of a um, a psychic, uh, New York Institute for Psychic Research in Manhattan. Uh, He was, um, he looked like, um, almost like a vampire. I didn't know who he was. And he appeared at the one of the side windows there. I almost jumped off the doorstep because <laughs> he had a you know, hawk like nose, yeah. dark circles under his eyes. Uh, I was just so startled.
4: And in that setting, yeah, it just adds to the uh, the mysteriousness. I had of... no
5: idea that all of these <laughs> extra people were going to show up. Sure. You know. The other thing that happened was that there was a switch on rep- uh, of reporters. By the way, at Channel 5, the irony about the Amityville coverage on Channel 5, the only ones who were excited about doing this were myself and Mark Monsky. Steve Bauman was not excited about doing this, this story because he was a serious reporter. Mm-hmm. Doing a ghost story, quote-unquote, you know, could wreck his reputation. Um, Oh, and by the way, what happened was he suddenly took off for a vacation in one, you know, in Bermuda in mid-afternoon. I didn't know this. Marvin Scott was pressed into service, much to his chagrin, because he and his wife had had tickets to go out for months to go to a Broadway show that they had you know was sold out for months with sure. friends okay so he wasn't happy um nobody nobody wanted nobody wanted this so you know
4: <laughs> turns out to be one of the most so, infamous stories in the history of of ghost stories nobody, knew nobody it wanted it be yeah this big. <laughs> exactly yeah
5: when you're as you know when you're in the news business you
4: have no idea
6: yep
5: if you're going from one thing to another. After a while, it's especially in New York, it's just another murder. It's just another robbery. It's just another plane crash. Mm-hmm. That's the way you think about it. It's, it's very pedestrian. So Marvin, actually, when I happened to call the station that afternoon, at 2 in the afternoon, 2 or 3 in the afternoon... Uh, asking for Steve Bauman. They said he wasn't around. He had gone on vacation. I said, what do you mean? And at that point, Marvin had grabbed the phone and said, hey, I've just been assigned this stor- story. Tell me everything about it. I know nothing about it. Uh, and he was, he was pretty ticked off, you know, because his wife was ready to divorce him <laughs> <laughs> all the late nights. And now you're, now you're, you're basically cutting out on, we've, we've had these tickets that it took us months to get and I've been wanting to go to this Broadway show for months. It's been sold out, and now you're you're canceling on us
4: to go to a haunted house. So, yeah,
5: <laughs> I know for a haunted house. Yeah, and, and at that point, it was not that big a story. Sure. Again, so um, when we, you know, we got there, and you know, more and more people were sh- were showing up. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was. Uh, it was quite, um, you know, it was quite, quite the, um, quite the thing. And then what happened? Unfortunately, um, when we did the séance itself, after the séance in the, with, the, and we had all of these psychics there that lorraine had invited we had one of the psychics ran out of the room um screaming saying it's in the it's in the second floor bedroom somebody else ran out and got sick on the front lawn i was sitting in between marvin scott and mike linder and all of a sudden at one point marvin said to me hey i just felt a chill and then five minutes later Mike Linder said to me, hey, I just felt a chill. Now, in the ensuing years and decades since, when Marvin has talked about it, he says, yeah, at one point during the seance, I felt a little chill. I can tell you that night when Marvin felt the chill, he didn't say, yeah, I felt a little chill. He says, hey, I just felt a chill.
4: Yeah.
5: Um, And Marvin has always said, he did not uh he's felt more afraid watching the movie when the amityville horror came out uh more afraid with all the kids throwing popcorn and smoking pot in the theater um but the one the one of the things that happened that night of, of march 6th when we got there uh, that really struck me um and everybody admitted this, was that our cameraman, Steve Petropoulos, he was about 40, he was slim, and in those days, you had a three-man film crew. Cameraman, sound guy, and the lighting guy. And the equipment was much bigger and heavier in those days. So the cameraman, those guys had to be in shape. Steve Petropoulos was based in, in New Jersey, and again, it wasn't a huge story and he was he was one of our um he wasn't one of our regular staff camera guys he was one of our regular like fourth or fifth guys, so he was a regular stringer for us mm-hmm. so um the camera guys uh the film crew arrived at about ten o'clock and They, um, Steve Petropolis started to walk up the stairs to the second floor. That was where everybody, um, you know, started, there was one spot at the second floor landing where people felt things, but Steve walked up, um, Steve and I were chatting at the foot of the stairs. And I was introducing him to the different psychics. Um, he, so, so Steve says, I'll, I'm going to take a look around. And he started to walk up the stairs, and he, he got five steps up. And he said to myself and Alberta Riley, she was one of the other psychics that Ed and Lorraine Warren had invited. He, he turns around and he says, there's a room on the second floor. The second door on the right, he says, and it's filled with mirrors. And he said to me, I don't know how I know that. Now, I had been in the house before, the week before. That was the the master bedroom. That was the DeFeo's bed, you know, Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr.'s bedroom, where they had been shot.
4: I get the chills every time I hear about the Amityville Horror. It is a case that has fascinated me since childhood. There is much more to this interview. She goes into much more detail. If you'd like to hear the full thing, subscribe to my podcast, The Grave Talks. You can get it wherever you download podcasts. My other podcast, Real Ghost Stories Online. We talk about all this stuff on there as well. Jerry, Tracy, thank you for having me on and letting me share some of my favorite ghost story of the year. I'm Tony Brusky. Happy Halloween, everyone. Halloween.
7: This is Diane Student of the History Goes Bump podcast, wishing a very happy Halloween to Jerry and Tracy Polly, and all of their listeners. I'm a big fan of cemeteries, so I want to tell you a story about a cemetery from right here in my home state, of Florida. This cemetery I want to tell you about is called the Boca Raton Cemetery and its named for the city where it's located. Boca Raton is kind of down near southern Florida, closer to Miami than it is to me in central Florida. It has beautiful beaches and a lot of Spanish style architecture. The Boca Raton Cemetery is the only cemetery that is currently still operating in this city. It's a beautiful cemetery, and it has a wonderful mausoleum located there as well. I know of two ghosts that are reputedly in this cemetery. One of the spirits here is of a child. It's a little girl about the age of 13, and she's known as Little Mary. It's believed that she died from some kind of illness. She's been seen inside of the mausoleum, walking up and down the hallway. Sometimes she's outside, sitting on a marble bench. And one man claims that when he went to go visit the burial of his wife... He caught a vision of this little girl. She was dressed in a maroon-colored dress that had white sleeves. She was kneeling in front of a tombstone, and when she saw that he noticed her, she smiled at him, and he felt like she was very friendly and comforting. The other spirit that's here is a bit chilling and not very friendly. As a matter of fact, his nickname is The Screaming Man. This isn't a haunting that dates back very far. The first reports of this were in 1991. Someone was inside the mausoleum and all of a sudden they heard these very painful cries. And they went running around to see who is crying out in this way. Someone must have fallen and hurt themselves or be in some kind of distress. This person searched all over the mausoleum and found no one. They run outside. Maybe the person had gone out there. No one was anywhere. The person went and told the cemetery staff and they put it in the back of their minds and really didn't think much about it. But then they started getting more and more reports and they started hearing more things than just someone crying out in pain. They were hearing about this disembodied cries and screams and cursing against God. There was this sobbing that would get louder and louder and louder. Most of the reports would happen when people were visiting the cemetery in the early morning hours. One of the most interesting stories about the Screaming Man comes from a park ranger. The rangers are in charge of patrolling the cemetery and making sure that everything's in order. So he was out on one of his patrols. It was about 2.45 in the morning. He parked his car along the cemetery's road, and he got out and started walking around. As he approached the mausoleum, he could hear this really strange crying. He stopped, unsure of what he was hearing. And then he was like, nope, that sounds like a human crying. It doesn't sound like any kind of an animal. So he started walking quickly towards the mausoleum because he thought he was going to be catching someone who either was in there and shouldn't be in there, or maybe he was going to be going in there and helping somebody who was having some kind of distress also. So he gets to the front entrance, and he notices the sobbing and the cursing that he's hearing seems to be getting further and further away from him. (laughs) So he assumes that whoever is inside the mausoleum is moving deeper into it. Now, I don't know if he was a little bit afraid or not, but he decided to return to his car and continue his patrol using his spotlight. He wasn't about to go into that dark mausoleum and search for whoever was in there. As he starts to walk away from the mausoleum, he notices that the sobbing gets louder and louder. So he's thinking, this is strange. As I got closer, it went away. Now that I'm getting further away from the mausoleum, it's getting louder again. He quickly turns around because he thinks, I'm going to bust whoever this is. As he does, he can see some kind of a dark shadowy figure standing in the corridor, slightly illuminated by a streetlight that was across the way. This wasn't just some kind of shadow figure that was standing there. It was flailing its arms around as if it was in some kind of a frenzy, and he could hear these tormented cries coming from it. Needless to say, he turned around and ran to his car. As he reached his car, he took one more look back and he saw this shadowy figure go from one part of the mausoleum to the other and it was still waving its arms and shaking its hands around. He decided to call the police and have them investigate. They found nothing. The park ranger said he never heard or saw the screaming man again, but he will never forget that. One of the last times that the screaming man was heard was during Tropical Storm Gordon, which happened in November of 1994. These angry screams and cries were heard coming from the mausoleum. And in case you are wondering how loud was this screaming, we have a hurricane going on here. Nobody's in the cemetery. And these guys in an apartment near the cemetery are hearing the screaming man. They, of course, think that somebody's in danger. They're out in this storm. Maybe they should go help this person. So they go out in the storm. They walk over to the mausoleum. As they get closer to it, the crying seemed to go away. Kind of the same experience of the park ranger. They looked all around and found no trace of anyone. There are people to this day that claim that anytime you are near that mausoleum and there's a thunderstorm brewing or it's a moonless night, you will hear the wails and cries of the screaming man. Happy Halloween!
8: Hi everyone, I'm Jess, and I host the podcast Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos. I like to talk about a little bit of everything that's out of the ordinary, from hauntings and folklore to true crime and history. I'm also a practicing witch, so I do make it a point to dedicate an episode here and there specifically to the craft. When it comes to the subject of witchcraft, I do get a lot of questions And there are quite a few misconceptions out there about witchcraft, so I'll answer some of the most common before we get started. Number one, no, I do not worship the devil. Number two, no, I cannot shoot sparks from my fingertips. And number three, no, I cannot turn your ex into a toad, no matter how much they deserve it. Now that that's out of the way... There is one question I get that does have a more complicated answer simply because of the history behind it. Can you fly on broomsticks? The short answer is no. However, when we think of the classic depiction of witches and how they're still thought of as today, we see a woman, whether it's an ugly old hag or a beautiful young woman twitching her nose, is up to the person visualizing this but we always think of them gliding through the autumn night sky on a broom. Have you ever wondered why? A quick warning for those listening, the explanation of this does involve some things that might be triggers, including hallucinogenic drug use, and some explanations do involve a more sexual element that some parents may not be comfortable with children hearing. There are a lot of working parts to this. And some scholars actually disagree on some of this. But there is a belief that women who practice witchcraft used something called flying oil or flying ointment to, quote, fly. Now, in my experience, this isn't the kind of flying you're thinking of. This kind of flying, your body doesn't actually leave the ground. But with the traditional flying ointment, the person using it essentially gets high as a kite. Using flying oil is believed to aid in astral travel and assisting in the act of your spirit leaving your physical body to go out into the world on its own, able to return at any time. So let's start with how this flying oil was traditionally made. That does depend on who you ask. Someone that probably all of you have heard of, Sir Francis Bacon. He wrote about flying ointment. And his description of the ingredients is, well, a little bit off. He describes flying ointment being made with the fat from children who had been recently dug from their graves, smallage, now we just call this celery, wolfsbane, and sink. This is actually a weed that grows in your yard in the spring or early summer, sometimes referred to as barren strawberry. So this isn't exactly right, as you could probably guess. The fat of children isn't used. (laughs) To make this ointment, usually beeswax or animal fat, or a combination of the two, was used. Both of these are ingredients that were also common in making other salves, candles, and even soap making. Next, I'm not sure if celery would actually help this process, but traditionally, herbs and plants like belladonna, henbane, weed, black henbane, hemlock, and wolfsbane, which was mentioned before. So Sir Bacon got that one right. All of these plants are poisonous. Most of them contain something called atropine, hyoscyamine, or scoplamine. These are chemicals that are naturally occurring in these plants that can cause everything from the effect of a muscle relaxer, to psychotropic effects when absorbed through the skin. Basically, some of these plants can actually make you go on a psychedelic trip where you're not sure what's real and what's not. The big controversy with scholars comes to how this ointment was applied. There have been quite a few books published that include bits about this subject, a few of which have some passages that greatly impact the thought or theory about how these witches use the flying ointment. The three most recognized, or the ones I think had the most significant impacts on this thought, are by Eric Hess, Jordan Stébargemo, and Thomas Wright. I'm going to take a couple of quotes right from these publications. The first is from Eric Hess, The hallucinations are frequently dominated by the erotic moment in those days in order to experience these sensations. Young and old women would rub their bodies with the witch's salve. Next, from Jordan de Bargemil. The witches confess that they anoint a staff and ride on it to the appointed place or anoint themselves under the arms and in other hairy places. The last is from Thomas Wright. In rifling the closet of the lady Alice Keitler, a suspected witch, they found a pipe of ointment wherewith she greased a staff, upon which she ambled and galloped through thick and thin, when and in a manner she listed. Now there are hundreds of other publications that detail witches applying this flying oil to places where it would be easily absorbed, usually on or near mucous membranes. I know what you're thinking. You think mucus, and you think the nose. It's not where we're going with this one. If you're thinking lady bits, you'd be right. The theory is that this ointment and its psychotropic effects would be best absorbed near the vulva, we see in our minds the witch riding the broomstick. We don't typically think of them as riding side saddle. It is thought that witches would rub this ointment onto the handle of the broom, place it between their legs in order to transfer that ointment to the vulva. Some believe that the handle of the broom was used more as a phallic tool in order to transfer the ointment into the vagina. Really, either is possible. But when these plants take effect, you relax, and again, depending on who you ask, you fly. There were a lot of bishops and clergymen all the way up until the early 20th century that thought using this flying ointment would essentially make it easier for these witches to communicate with the devil and then physically fly. Majority of people that have studied this Believe that you either just hallucinate, or your spirit is able to detach itself from your body and go on a journey of its own, leaving your physical body in a comatose-like state. Nowadays, a lot of practitioners don't feel comfortable using these poisonous plants. So alternatives are used that are considered non-toxic and safe. This new oil is usually made up of a combination of sandalwood, mugwort, and bay leaves, steeped in a carrier oil, like olive oil or sweet almond oil, usually for a few weeks. And now it is advised to avoid those mucous membranes. So now you know the reason that a witch is usually depicted as riding a broomstick through the sky. I hope that this was an interesting learning experience for you, and. If you'd like to know more about some of the common misconceptions about witchcraft, or have an interest in some haunted places or true crime, you can find Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos, and that's booze spelled B-O-O-S, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you all soon. Bye!
9: I'm Jimbo, and this is my co host Terrence. Hello. And we are the Tragedy of Cinema Podcast, a weekly podcast that reviews older movies and gives facts, unknown facts, trivia, and our opinions on those movies. So, Jerry from Hillbilly Horror Stories had asked us to do a quick segment of our show, so we took uh, the original Halloween and condensed it down to a smaller version just to give you guys um, a better idea of what we do each and every week. So, like a Terrence.
10: snapshot of kind of how we go. <laughs>
9: a snapshot. <laughs> and Terrence, why don't you go ahead and take us away and start us off
10: with right. Halloween. So Halloween, the release date for Halloween was October 27th, 1978. So right before Halloween. Which is how nice. perfect. Exactly, right? Perfect release date. Uh, budget, we're looking at uh, 3025 estimated. Uh, uh, sorry, three hundred twenty-five thousand uh, g- gross USA. It made forty-seven million, so it definitely made its money back, almost tenfold. Right? Uh, it made a lot of money. It was it was a success. Uh, this was directed by the John Carpenter, who's famous director goes without saying. Right? Uh, writing credits goes to John Carpenter for the screenplay, screenplay and Deborah Hill also uh, for the screenplay. The technical specs were looking at an hour and a half movie with sound mix and mono. Uh, this was filmed using the camera Panavision Panaflex and Panavision C series lenses uh, which typically goes hand in hand with the aspect ratio of three point two point three nine by 1. Uh, its film length was 2,484 meters which, a uh, little fun fact, that is basically how long the the film is itself and that consists of three thousand foot you know those big film uh rolls that you see in our uh, little image uh for our podcast and you know typical uh, older movies when they're like let's let's bury the movies away and you'll just see a bunch of films just <laughs> from you know, the vault yeah exactly into the vault uh negative format 35 millimeter which was popular type of uh, size of film to film movies on. And some the graphic process, Panavision Anamorphic. That just basically means it was ride screen and they use Panavision lenses. And then finally, my favorite part, the awards. So I'm just going to name off a couple of these. Uh, they were nominated for the, in the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films, 1979 for Best Horror Film. Uh, didn't win, but they were nominated. Uh, in the chicago international film festival 1978 they were nominated for a gold hugo for best Feature by john carpenter los angeles film critics association awards 1979 they won a new generation award john carpenter won that and that is it for the awards now off to the synopsis on halloween night in 1963 Young Michael Myers murders his sister. Now, 15 years later, Michael has escaped from the mental hospital and returned to Haddonfield, Illinois, to kill once again.
9: Right, so we'll go ahead and jump into the little bit of the cast. Um, as I said, this is just a clip. Of, there's a lot more we cover on the final version of this. Oh, yeah. So um, we had Donald Pleasance uh, as Dr. Sam Loomis. Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Nick Castle as Michael Myers and The Shape. They call him The Shape in the credits. Really? The, rest. the Shape? The Shape. Huh. Uh, Tony Moran as Michael Myers Unmasked, when he was Unmasked, and Will Sandon as young Michael Myers at the age of six. So, a little bit of the fun stuff that I get to do. I get to Tell some of the lesser known facts, maybe some trivia that people may or may not know about the film. Then we get to have fun banter about it. Right. (laughs) John Carpenter considered the hiring of Jamie Lee Curtis as the ultimate tribute to Alfred Hitchcock, who had given her mother, Janet Lee legendary status in the film Psycho from 1960. And oddly enough, we talked
10: about this very fact in reverse when we went over Psycho. That was our
9: second episode, Psycho. Now, this is one of the ones that I found the most fascinating, talking about the mask. It was revealed that the crew had two masks to choose from. The first was a Emmett Kelly smiling clown mask that they put frizzy red hair on. (laughs) This was a homage to how he killed his sister Judith in a clown costume. They tested it out and it appeared very demented and creepy. I mean, clowns are (laughs) just creepy in general. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The other mask was a 1975 Captain James T. Kirk mask that was purchased for around a dollar. It had the eyebrows and sideburns ripped off, the face was painted fish belly white, and the hair was spray painted brown, and the eyes were opened up more. They tested out the Kirk mask, and the crew decided that it was much more creepy because it was emotionless. This became known as the Michael Myers mask. Hmm. Also considered for the mask roles was Richard Nixon and Spock were also considered... Uh, the stabbing effect, as seen in most of these movies, is a knife stabbing a watermelon. So yeah. when you hear the...
10: <laughs> it's actually I'm just the trying to imagine the whole movie with... Richard
9: Nixon. <laughs> Richard Nixon. He's not a crook. He might be a criminal, but he's not a, a crook.
10: Fun, fun little thing, when, when you said the clown one... Um, I feel like something that was inspired by Halloween was later on, uh, there's a video game called Twisted Metal and there's this crazy clown. Same backstory, like he kills his family, he's super demented and all that stuff. But, you know, that's sort of almost the clown route of of this, which I think is interesting. Uh, But, yeah, it would have been a completely different feel of the movie if they did it in a clown mask instead. Uh, The story is based on the experience
9: John Carpenter had in college touring a psychiatric hospital. Carpenter met a child who stared at him with a look of evil and he said it terrified him. (laughs) There you go. Halloween was shot in just 20 days in the spring of 1978, made on a budget of only $300,000. It became the highest-grossing independent movie ever made at that time. So, wow, this is an
10: indie movie of all things.
9: Right. And even Jamie Lee Curtis and all of them had to go do their own shopping, so she went to JCPenney, and she got her whole wardrobe for the entire movie for only $100. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, John Carpenter also approached Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee to play the role of Dr. Sam Loomis. That was eventually played by Donald Pleasance, but both turned down due to the low pay. Lee later said it was the biggest mistake he had ever made in his career, Uh, and that is fantastic (laughs) because some of the roles that that guy has played, I mean, you're talking major, major roles, big,
10: big, big roles. Uh,
9: This is this is not necessarily. This is kind of funny. It says. The dark lighting from the movie comes from necessity. The crew didn't have enough money for more lights. <laughs> so the creepy dark feeling is actually due to budgetary reasons. That's but hey, it worked out perfectly. Yeah, I mean,
10: it's a happy little accident.
9: And also, the uh, there was actually five different people who dressed as Michael Myers for this film. Nick Castle, who is seen throughout the movie as most Snow. Tony Moran during The Unmasking by Laurie. Stuntman James Winburn. Um, production designer Tommy Lee Wallace... He was in there due to his knowledge of how much force it would need to break props during action shots in a single take, since they didn't have a lot of money to do multiple takes. That makes sense. And the one that I found the funniest, co-writer and co-producer Deborah Hill (laughs) in the external wide shot when Tommy sees the shape for the first time. So Michael Myers is actually portrayed by a woman. Oh, wow. For the first time you see him in the wide shape. Uh, She said uh, she didn't expect to be in it, but she just happened to bring the costume with her that day and no one else was available for the shot. (laughs) I was like,
11: wow.
10: I think it's interesting that there's a handful of like, you know, costume creatures and horror and stuff like that that are portrayed by multiple people.
9: Right. But that one one really shocked me. I'm going to have to go back and check that one out. And last but not least, Robert Englund of Nightmare on Elm Street fame uh, revealed in an interview that John Carpenter had him throw bags of dead leaves on set for one day so freddie was throwing
10: leaves for michael myers that's great right
9: so there you have it that is our uh just a little tad of what we do um you can catch the full version of this show halloween Uh, we plan on releasing it halloween night this year yep um so i want to say thanks again to jerry and tracy from hillbilly horror stories and i want to say happy halloween to everybody all the hillbillies out there Thanks. And if you like what you hear, go subscribe to the Tragedy Cinema podcast. And anywhere,
10: spooky October.
9: <laughs> anywhere podcasts are available.
12: Hi everyone, I'm Nate Hale, host of The Conspirators, the show in which I take my listeners on a journey into some of the darkest and strangest stories from history. I just wanted to take a moment to thank Jerry and Tracy for letting me join in on all the Halloween fun, and now, on with my story. You could say Deke Slayton was a man who spent his entire life with his head in the clouds. During World War II, he became a decorated combat pilot flying missions over Europe and Japan, then later on to become one of America's first astronauts and test pilots. Deke dedicated his life to trying to go faster and fly higher. Nothing could stop Deke Slayton from taking to the skies. Some say, not even death. He was born Donald Kent Slayton in Sparta, Wisconsin in 1924. He first got his wings in April 1943 when he flew dozens of combat missions over Europe and Japan in World War II. Following his first stint in the military, he got a job at Boeing, studying aeronautical engineering. He did that for two years before joining the Minnesota Air Guard in 1951. From there, he joined the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, where he learned to fly the fastest jets the military had to offer. But Deke always had his sights set on the next horizon the next big opportunity to fly where no one had ever gone before. In 1959, Deke got his big chance. That was the year he was selected for NASA's Mercury program. The Mercury program was one of the stepping stones that would lead to NASA's ultimate goal of putting a man on the moon. Mercury's mission was to prove that humans could function in zero gravity. Deke was only one of seven men chosen for the program. He was originally assigned to the first orbital mission, but at the last minute he was pulled from that flight and reassigned to the second mission instead. But because he'd been reassigned, he was forced to undergo another round of physical examinations. And that's when an Air Force physician expressed his concerns about a slight fluctuation in Deke's heart rate. As a result, NASA scrubbed Deke from the Mercury mission entirely. He insisted he was healthy as a horse and totally ready for the mission. But nothing he could say or do could convince NASA to change their decision. With insult to injury, Deke had his flight status revoked, and for a time, he remained grounded. But Deke refused to let this setback keep him down. Following his reassignment, in 1962, Deke became the assistant director of flight operations for NASA. Before being promoted to the full directorship four years later. But although his career was getting back on track, the one thing Deke dreamed of more than anything at all was getting back up in the air. He vowed to get in shape and do everything he could to regain his flight status. In March 1972, he underwent a new set of physical exams which he passed with flying colors. And after that, his flight status was reinstated. The first thing Deke did to celebrate was take a T-38 training jet up in the air and show off by performing some hot dog aerobatics over Ellington Air Force Base in Texas. Then in 1975, Deke's dream of going into outer space finally came true, when he became the captain of the crew of the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project. The Apollo crew launched into space on July 15, 1975. Deke and his crew spent nine days in space docking with the Russian Soyuz spacecraft for 44 hours. It was the crowning achievement of his flight career. After Deke returned to Earth, he stayed on with NASA, moving into an administrative position where he helped build the first space shuttle. Deke Slayton finally retired from NASA in February 1982. But the sky was Deke's home. And even though he retired, he refused to keep his feet planted on the ground for too long. He bought a powerful Formula One racing plane, and he loved to take it up in the air and show off his aerobatic skills. Deke hadn't lost a step. He could still make a plane dance through the air, taking it higher, faster, looping it through the sky with the greatest of ease. And that's exactly what got him in trouble on June 13th, 1993. John Wayne Airport is a busy transportation hub in Orange County, California, just south of Los Angeles. It was the airport people used who lived in many of the outlying communities who didn't want to deal with the mass chaos at LAX. In 2012 alone, more than 8 million air travelers passed through John Wayne's gates. Hundreds of private pilots kept their planes there as well. All of which is to say that at 7.55 a.m. on June 13th, there were many witnesses who saw and heard a noisy red Formula One racing plane go buzzing over the airport. It was impossible to miss. Wherever the hotshot was behind the stick, he had some serious skills in the cockpit. The pilot spent the better part of an hour doing a bunch of crazy aerobatic loops and other stunts. This managed to seriously alarm many of the airport personnel on the ground. The plane was loud, for one thing, with its massive propeller setting off three airport-area noise monitors. The pilot hadn't filed a proper flight plan, and he didn't respond to any of their hails either on the radio. Whoever he was and whatever he thought he was doing, his hot-dogging presented a major flight risk to some of the commercial planes taking off. But then, after several minutes, the pilot's little stunt show finally ended. The last anyone saw of the little red plane was it zooming off into some clouds, disappearing from sight. But before the plane zoomed off, several witnesses managed to take down the huge registration numbers painted on the plane's side, N21X, and reported the incident to the Federal Aviation Administration. It didn't take long for the FAA to trace the airplane as belonging to one Deke Slayton, war hero, former NASA official, and former Apollo astronaut. The FAA fired off a letter of citation to Deke Slayton's home on June 28th. But the response they received back wasn't at all what they were expecting. The person who responded to their letter of reprimand was Bobby Slayton, Deke's wife. She admitted that her husband did own a red Formula One racing plane and that the plane did indeed have the registration number N21X. Her husband loved that plane dearly and he did love to show off his aerobatic skills as well. But she also informed the FAA in no uncertain terms that it was impossible for Deke to have been flying his plane over John Wayne Airport in California on June 13, 1993. For one thing, Deke's family had donated the plane to a Texas Air Museum several months earlier, and it was currently sitting in the museum on display with the engine removed. But that wasn't the only problem, you see. On June 13, 1993, Deke Slayton died of terminal brain cancer in Texas at 3.22 a.m., Just a few hours before his red Formula One racing plane was sighted flying over John Wayne Airport at 7.55 a.m.
13: Hi, Jerry. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me on your Halloween special. Hello, everyone else. I am Father Sin. I'm from The Sinful Show. That's sinful with a Y. I hope you all enjoy this short story. The rainy season began in early summer, and June had been no exception. It did not surprise a man when he discovered rainwater dripping from his dining room ceiling. Shrugging it off, He placed a tall pot beneath the leak and expected it to stop on its own. However, it continued to rain and before he knew it, the pot would threaten to overflow. He had to dump the water out first thing in the morning and straight after he returned home from work. Eventually, he began to notice water damage at the source of the leak. The white ceiling had discolored, turning a dull shade of brown. He checked the weather and realized that it would continue to rain sporadically over the next 10 days. The man was worried about the ceiling mildewing and becoming an expensive repair, so he called a a local handyman. Unfortunately, the man could not sign to have the repairs done only his landlord could. It was a frustrating policy. The man called his landlord but could not reach him. He left him a few voicemails detailing how the damage was becoming progressively worse. The man was clueless as to why his landlord would not return his calls. They usually kept in touch, speaking at least twice a month. Finally, he reasoned that he would not be held accountable for any damages sustained. One night, the man was startled awake by a massive thump. He quickly turned on his bedside lamp, and just vaguely, he could see an, see an overturned table and a large shape laying across it. He sprinted out of his apartment and called the police, gagging at the smell the man sat in the police station with a blanket wrapped around his shoulders and a coffee mug resting in his hands. He did know one thing. There had been a dead body in the ceiling and the water had saturated it so badly that it caved under the weight. So far the body was unidentifiable due to the rainwater and was being autopsied. While the man waited, he called his landlord and finally reached him, panicking as he explained the situation. His landlord was just as alarmed and the man pleaded for him to come to the station while he made a statement. The man paused as the detective crossed over to him and he lowered his phone, wondering if the body had been identified. His blood ran immediately cold, and he shook his head with terror. The body belonged to Richard Thompson, his landlord, and he had died over a year ago. That's not what disturbed him the most. If his landlord was dead, then who was pretending to be him?
14: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Black Crypt Podcast. This is Tucker, and as always, I'm joined by Shannon and Alex.
15: Actually, Tucker, this isn't really an episode. It's just a bit for the Halloween episode over at uh, Hillbilly Horror Stories. Yeah, we're just kind of introducing our podcast and then telling an original horror story. Really?
14: Really? so I guess we aren't going to open with a horror news segment like we usually do then?
15: Nope. Shame, too. I really want to talk about the teaser trailer for Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. Do you think Jamie Lee Curtis is too old to do a full frontal?
14: God, I hope so. So, you're telling me all of the research I did for this week's episode was just a waste of time? Prayed so, man. And this carefully curated outline and eight pages of twelve point single space Times New Roman print on why the Diatlov Nine were most definitely killed by a Yeti, and then the entire incident swept under the rug, and a giant Russian cover-up was all for nothing.
15: I mean, I guess so, yeah. Wait. Do you actually think it was a Yeti? I hate Yetis.
14: <sighs> well, when you aren't listening to Jerry and Tracy here on Hillbilly Horror Stories, check us out at the Black Crypt Podcast, available wherever podcasts are found. You can listen to our hour-long episode as we actually discuss the Love Pass incident or any other of the topics that we've tackled on the show.
15: Feel free to check out our other segments, too. We have interviews discussing real-life paranormal encounters on booze and booze, Horror video games on the horror cabinet, reviews of movies available on streaming services over at ScreamStreams, and even a YouTube page to check out. So, you can even look back into the Black Crypt podcast archives if you are the type that's more interested in hearing original horror stories. And speaking of original horror stories...
16: Sit
17: down, it's time for a story.
14: Halloween is by far my favorite holiday. Thanksgiving, Easter, St. Patty's Day, nothing even comes close. Even Christmas doesn't hold a peppermint, spice scented candle to good old All Hallows Eve. <laughs> what makes it so great, you say? <sighs> I should ask you what part of Halloween isn't great. The costumes, carved gourds, lit with candles, trick-or-treating, ah, the wonder of it all. But by far my absolute favorite part of Halloween must be the candy. Oh, the candy! <laughs> you see, I'm quite the connoisseur of treats. Back in the old days, you had the classics, of course. Caramel apples, popcorn balls, and even good old-fashioned candy corn, My, how those times were simpler. Not like nowadays, where everything must be bought from the store and individually packaged for the safety of the children. Try to avoid peanuts and other allergens, of course. Gluten-free is best, and include a nutritious option, if you can, for the more health-conscious of the ten-year-olds. Bah! Can you imagine the reaction one would get if you even tried to offer a child a delicious homemade snack? Why, the outrage would be palpable. Don't think me a bitter old man, though. I do enjoy the multitudes of candy available these days as well. As a matter of fact, I'm quite partial to Butterfingers. Snickers and Milky Way are fine as well, although... I find they melt a bit too quickly at times. The same holds true for most chocolate-based candy, I suppose. By the time the child has chewed and swallowed the morsel, it's basically just chocolate syrup in their belly. Meaning, by the time I get past the little devil's abdomen and into their stomach, There is hardly anything left for me at all. I must admit, it may be easier for me to enjoy Halloween candy before the children eat it, but it just doesn't have the same flavor. Once those sweet sugars have a chance to really mix with the savory, meaty bits of the child, oh, (laughs) I couldn't possibly explain to you the explosion of flavors in my mouth. Really is quite wonderful.
5: Trick or treat!
14: Do you know why trick or treaters began wearing masks all those years ago? <laughs> it's silly when you think about it. They believed that if they disguised themselves as ghosts and demons and all other manner of beasts that go bump in the night, it would confuse the real devils and they would be left alone to their celebrations. I suppose it did confuse us at first, but not for the reasons they believe. The rest of the demons and I just sat back and laughed until our sides hurt at the sight of humans walking around in poor similes of our faces. We aren't even so different. Humans and demons, that is. Well, in appearance at least. I suppose that's why it's so easy to collect my candy on Halloween. No one suspects a kindly old widower of such things. I know what you're thinking. If you only eat candy, you'll get cavities. (laughs) Well, don't worry. No part of the trick-or-treater goes to waste. I have not one but two large ovens at my disposal which stay hot for the most part of a week following Halloween. I enjoy a good roast as much as I do a Twizzler. You'd think with all of the missing children reports in the area, someone would have come knocking on my door, asking questions at some point. But each year, the little costumed brats push and shove up my doorstep. Bags held out at an arm's length. Oh, well, speak of the devil. I'm sorry, but you'll have to excuse me now. We don't want to keep the little ones waiting, do we?
6: <laughs> help! Help! Somebody help me! Help! Help!
14: Oh, Billy. Hush now, my boy. I'll be with you soon enough. Why not enjoy some more of that candy I've left down there with you? So impatient, children these days. <laughs> We'd like to say thank you to Hillbilly Horror Stories for including us on your Halloween special this year. We hope that you enjoyed our story, and, of course, we hope that everyone's having an extra spooky Halloween season.
15: If you enjoyed our little segment, come and join us on our own podcast for our regularly scheduled programming.
14: So we hope you'll join
15: us at the Black Rip Podcast, and make sure you check us out wherever your podcasts are. GG. Thanks. Good day. Bye. See ya. Did I have another line or... No, I... No, I think we're done. I think we're good.
14: Black Crypt Podcast.
16: Hi,
18: everybody. My name is Tessa Morrow, and in April of this year, I joined Jerry and Tracy in the podcaster world, and I have Paranormal Prowlers podcast. Now, I've been investigating the paranormal for well over a decade, but have been obsessed with it since, believe it or not, age two. While I have a plethora of encounters, experiences, and odd and eerie moments with the paranormal and supernatural, the story that I'm about to tell you isn't mine at all. Doing what I do, I've had many people, strangers, loved ones, friends, acquaintances, family, and so on, tell me about their paranormal happenings. My dear aunt, Mary Bird, told me about something she encountered long ago. I was so intrigued by this true event that I included it in my very first book. And I want to share it with you, ghouls. Today, my Aunt Mary Bird, she's an EMT, among many other things. She helps people. She's there comforting people on their worst day of days. It's what she does best. She's been doing this for decades. And she is not alone. Her children, my cousins, range from firefighters, law enforcement, dispatchers, and EMTs, true heroes. The story I'm about to tell you on this spooky Halloween evening is a true story a event that took place decades earlier in the San Luis Valley in the mountains of gorgeous Colorado. Now, back then, my aunt was just a teen, around 18 or so. And even then, she was helping people. She was working at the hospital and the nursing home in a sweet little town called Del Norte. She was working the graveyard shift, 11 to 7. Now, I must mention, she didn't live in town. She was a good 20 minutes away. So... On this particular night, she's driving to work. Now today, if you go through the area, the speed limit is 55 miles per hour. But back then, the speed limit was 75. So she's going a pretty good speed. She's driving. She has some tunes on, getting ready for a long night of work at the hospital. She's driving through an area that is known as Plaza Hill. Now I must mention that Plaza Hill is very, very eerie. The very few times that I've driven through there, what little people I saw stopped what they were doing only to stare at me. I felt like I was kind of in the twilight zone, not gonna lie. Later, I found out through my aunt that witchcraft and black magic is practiced in this area from way back and today as well. And if you're not Mexican, Hispanic, Spanish, you get the drift, then you're not welcome there. No wonder they were staring at me. In later years, my aunt would encounter other strange things in Plaza Hill, and I'll mention those in a few minutes. So she's driving past Plaza Hill, going close to 80 miles per hour, when suddenly out of nowhere, this huge owl just appears. And in her words, she said to me, this owl hits my windshield, dead center. The wingspan totally covered the windshield and I couldn't see a thing. It just flew off. My windshield didn't break or anything. And it should have broke. I was going 75 miles an hour. It should have done some damage, but it didn't. At all. It was in the middle of the night. I was too chicken shit to stop and check. I was just grateful that my windshield was okay. Okay, so the rest of the drive, thankfully, is uneventful. She arrives to work shaken, but unharmed. There's no taking a breather at the hospital slash nursing home. As soon as she arrives, they pull her off the nursing home floor and put her straight to work in the hospital as they were shorthanded on that night. Mary Bird starts her shift and the uneasiness starts to kind of fade away. You know, it's still there, mind you, but work is always a good distraction, especially when you work somewhere like a hospital. Well, 45 minutes into her shift, an ambulance arrives at the emergency room. Now, in the ambulance is an old woman named Dolores. The EMTs explain that they found Dolores laying on the side of the road along Interstate 160, right by Plaza Hill. Her injuries, they're serious. She has a broken leg, and it's a very obvious broken leg. No question, no doubt. So they get her checked in, they ran tests, they do x-rays on her shattered body, and they get her set up in a room and into a bed. Well, my aunt, she goes in there to check up on Dolores, and they start to talk. The woman only speaks Spanish and my aunt through marriage is very fluent in Spanish. So they start conversing with one another. My aunt asks her if she's okay and if she needs anything at the moment. And what she says next gives me the chills. She says, I look at her and I ask her, how did it happen, the accident? And she says to me, you ought to know you hit me. I was in total shock. I go, I didn't hit you. I didn't hit no lady. And she says, you hit me. Well, we're arguing about this. We're going back and forth. And I told her, on my way from home going to work, I hit an owl in that area, but I didn't hit no human being. And she looks at me and says, you hit me, unquote. (laughs) Kind of creepy, right? This old woman, Dolores, was so excruciatingly confident that my aunt hit her with her car and that's why she was lying hurt on the side of the road. Well, my aunt was equally confident Like, lady, I hit an owl, not a person. I can tell the difference between an animal and a human being. Hello? Shaken up with this odd encounter with this even odder woman, my aunt's shift is finally complete. She wants nothing more than to get the heck out of there and go home. So remember, it was the graveyard shift. It is now the following morning and she is in her car on her way back home. She stops at the right turn to go to Plaza Hill. She gets out of her car, walks into the field, and walks onto the side of the road. She explains the scene. I walked in the field and on the other side of the road, I walked up and down. Not a single feather. Nothing, you know, nothing at all. You can see in the grass where there was an indentation of where somebody was lying. Aunt Mary Bird returns to work the following day. Her interest and curiosity highly piqued. She talks to one of the EMTs on the call to pick up Dolores. She asks him, where exactly did you guys find Dolores? She soon realized through this conversation with the EMT that she was found right in the spa where earlier she saw that indentation. That's where the crew found Dolores. You guys, that is the same area where my aunt hit that huge owl. Believe it or not, they become friends, Dolores and my aunt They would visit and talk. My aunt even met Dolores' family, including her sons and daughters, nieces and nephews. When Dolores finally was able to leave the hospital, she asked my aunt if she could accompany her back to her home to help her get settled and whatnot. Well, of course my aunt, who enjoys helping people and those in need, said yes to this elderly woman's request. They took her back home via ambulance, and my aunt showed Dolores' family the things that they had to do to help her get stronger and recover. During this, they became good friends, and they remained friends. Around four years later, my aunt noticed that, hey, Dolores, she's not doing very well. She actually has a hole in her leg, like literally a hole through and through. Dolores kept persisting that it was nothing, that she would be okay, she's fine. Well, she ended up getting gangrene due to that horrendous wound. She admitted to my aunt that this will probably be the end of her. And even though it probably would have saved Dolores's life, she refused amputation. She wouldn't let anybody near it. And she was right. That was the end of her. That wound, that gangrene, that took Dolores's life. Now, after Dolores's sudden death, Aunt Mary Bird was asked by the family if she could help them, you know, get the house ready for sale, clean it up and stuff. Of course, she said yes. Going through her late friends' possessions, my aunt and the family noticed that Dolores had a secret fake wall in one of her closets. They opened this fake wall section, this hidden door, and they found a bunch of black saints in this secret room. Now, that wasn't the only thing they found in this mystery room. There were a bunch of books, all in Spanish, of course. One book was about black magic titled The Book of the Black Hand, and in Spanish, it was called (laughs) <laughs> and I apologize in advance for butchering any words as it's been several years since I took Spanish. The book is called Le Libre La Maño Negra. There was another book that caught my aunt's eye and made all too much sense, Como Cambiel Animal, meaning how to change into an animal. My aunt's reaction, she said to me, I was amazed. This book explains that they can change into cats and owls, dogs and rocks, you know, all this shit. I tripped out. My aunt shared with me that she has no doubt that on that fateful day that she was shot, that Dolores was perhaps a rabbit or something and was shot by a hunter. And after this happened, after recovering that secret room, she would hear Dolores from time to time saying her name. She once told me that she got in the car and she has this habit, you know, she'll look around in the car before getting in so she could make sure that nobody's there. So one night she gets in the car getting ready to leave work when suddenly she hears her name. The voice came from the back seat and it was Dolores's voice, you guys. To this date this is still one of my favorite stories that has been told to me it chills me to the bone every single time so i hope you enjoyed it as well fast forward decades later after my aunt's encounter with the animal transforming witch or bruja my aunt is driving the ambulance on a call and going through plaza hill and as they enter the area the ambulance itself well it starts to malfunction the wiring is going haywire the lights are fading out the radio is just not working They are utterly shocked as this has never happened before. The lights were so dim, they couldn't even work on the patient. As soon as they get out of plaza and back on the interstate, the sirens roar back to life. The lights went back on fully bright and the radio starts right back up. This is unacceptable. This won't work. How can they work and drive and help people if their unit isn't working properly? So the next day, they brought the ambulance in to get a full checkup, and there was not a single thing wrong with it. No faulty wiring, no shortages, not a single thing. San Luis Valley is a very active location, you guys, from UFO sightings to animal mutilations to demonic homes to succubus and incubus cases and so much more. And of course, can't forget the witchcraft and black magic. A big thank you to Hillbilly Horror Stories for including me in your very special Halloween episode. And folks, in November, keep a lookout for my second book as Jerry and Tracy have their own very chapter in it. For more info, email me. Paranormal underscore prowlers at AOL dot com.
0: Happy Halloween!
19: The 1960s, while quietly sifting through dusty church archives in Udin, a small town in the province of Friuli in northeastern Italy, a historian named Carlo Ginsberg discovered a set of trial records that, upon closer examination, proved to be the greatest discovery of his career, the kind of which many historians only ever dream of finding. These records detailed a series of witch trials in Friuli from the late 16th to the early 17th century, which by itself would not be so interesting as the Inquisition was known to be active in Italy at that time. What made the story these records told so interesting was the fact that it depicted struggles between good witches and bad witches, and gave indications of a widespread folk belief in spiritual warfare and supernatural abilities. The story began in 1575, when an area priest named Scabaritza learned that a local man, Paolo Gasparato, had given a charm to another man whose son was ill. Interested in whatever folk healing tradition was at work, Scabaritza spoke with Gasparato, and he got himself an earful, Gasparato explained that the boy was possessed by a witch, and the charm had saved him. This he knew because he was a quote unquote vagabond, a benandante, or good walker, which meant he worked against the sorcery of malandante, the bad witches. The priest, Scabaritza, was, of course, intrigued as was the historian Ginsberg so many years later. So, he pressed Gasparato for further information. The vagabond explained that it is known when a child is born with a call or membrane over his or her head that he or she will be a witch, but it remains to be seen whether he or she will be a benandante or a malandante. The Binondanti are God's countermeasure against witchcraft serving Christ the way witches serve the devil and foiling their evils. He told of some of the ways the vagabonds thwarted them, explaining that witches and warlocks would visit farmhouses and check the pails there. If the water in them was clean, they would drink it. But if it was dirty, they would go into the cellar and turn over their wine barrels or push foul things through their bungholes, to spoil their wine. The benevolent vagabonds had to be there to stop them. Scabaritza was fascinated, but also concerned, for he feared that whatever magics these vagabonds wielded might come not from God, but rather the devil. As Gasparato continued to describe what it meant to be a benandante, though, Scabaritza began to feel better about the whole thing, for he suspected that it was all a tall tale or a dream. Gasparato explained that the vagabonds battled witches only during the ember tides, four certain times a year during which, according to the liturgical calendar, days are set aside for fasting and prayer. On Thursdays during the Ember Days, the Benandanti leave their bodies in a kind of astral projection, leaving their physical selves in a cataleptic state as though suffering sleep paralysis, and their souls rode into battle atop small animals like mice and rabbits. These cute steeds, they rode into the clouds where they must joust with the Malandanti. This they did, armed with stalks of fennel, while their wicked opponents fought back with stalks of sorghum, which is thought to be what witches make their brooms out of. Gasparato said that their battles would determine the quality of the village's crop. If the Benandanti won, local farmers' efforts would yield a great plenty, and if they lost, the crop would be meager. Scabaritza became of the mind that these nocturnal journeys were perhaps nothing more than dreams and superstitions, but he took Gasparato to an inquisitor at a nearby monastery all the same. Gasparato gladly retold his story to the inquisitor, but insisted that he could not share the names of his fellow vagabonds, for if he did, the witches would attack him. Upon their further investigation, Scabaritza and the inquisitor managed to turn up one other man who believed himself to be a Benandante, a town crier in the nearby village of Cividale? But since there seemed no evidence that their embertide jousting actually occurred outside of some vivid dreams, and since they claimed to serve God and not the devil, the Inquisitor and Skabaritsa chose to let the matter go. In 1580, five years after they had looked into the matter, another inquisitor of the Roman Catholic Church named Montefalco decided the investigation should be resumed and called Gasparato in for interrogation. This time, perhaps sensing a change in the attitude of his inquisitor, Gasparato denied it all denouncing such vagabond activities that he had previously described as righteous, calling them now ungodly. Inquisitor Montefalco tossed him in a prison cell and went after the town crier next. And this self-professed benandante told Montefalco everything, their embertide spiritual journeys through the clouds atop animals, their jousting with witches and warlocks over the fate of the town's crop. Montefalco, therefore, brought Gasparato back and confronted him again, and this time Gasparato admitted it, explaining his previous denial by again stating that he was afraid of retaliation from the witches were he to reveal too much. Over the course of Gasparato's interrogations, he gave the detail that an angel of God visited him to call him to the life of a vagabond, but his inquisitors turned this against him, suggesting that this being surely was a demon presenting itself as an angel, and that surely Gasparato and the other Ben Andante were nothing more than witches and warlocks who had been fooled into believing they served God, when in fact the nocturnal journeys and jousting games they undertook were in reality black masses, while they thought they were battling the devil they were, in fact, celebrating and worshipping him. Gasparato eventually came to believe this might have been true, and he broke down, naming other vagabonds. Over the next 50 years, the Inquisition would arrest numerous alleged Binondanti and denounce them as heretics, and those Binondanti in turn would accuse others of being the evil witches with whom they had done battle, in the clouds. Centuries later, in the 1960s, the historian Carlo Ginzburg believed that he had stumbled onto more than just a strange story from the Inquisition. He asserted that the unusual folk tradition of the Benandanti hinted at an ancient and widespread practice of nocturnal spirit journeys, he pointed to Siberian shamanistic beliefs and to Central European folk customs, such as the Pyrtenlaufen, in which townsfolk would form two groups, one wearing beautiful masks and the other wearing ugly masks, and would battle each other with sticks. He also looked to the Baltic region, where in Livonia in 1692, an octogenarian man named Theis was put on trial as a werewolf, and described his actions in much the same way. These confessed to being a werewolf, but claimed he was a good werewolf, as it were, because he was a quote-unquote hound of God. This meant that he and other hounds of God traveled to hell and battled the witches who served the devil, Beyond the surface similarity, there were numerous other parallels between Thys' claims and those of the Binondanti. Thies said the hounds of God only made their journeys a few times a year, not on ember days, but on other church holidays, and that they beat the witches with rods, not of wood, but of iron, and that the success of the local crops depended on their success in battling the witches who steal the blessing away from the seeds. Like Gasparato, Thies was also known to practice folk magic, acting as a healer and offering blessings and charms. In the end, if his claims of serving God were meant to avoid condemnation, it didn't work. Believing that he sought to lead godly folk away from the church, his accusers flogged him and banished him, to live out his days as an exile. Ginsberg saw in this story proof of the existence of the Binondanti, or at least proof of the existence of a widespread tradition with similar beliefs. For some vagabonds in Northern Italy spoke of transforming into animals during their night battles rather than just riding animals. Other scholars criticized Ginsberg for his methods and assumptions, claiming there is no concrete evidence that this tradition represents the survival of some massive pre-Christian fertility cult. But it certainly is an entertaining idea that long ago in the ancient past, Some men and women were born to be sorcerers, chosen to ride the spirits of animals, or to take the form of an animal once a year to battle evil on some unearthly plane. Think, for example, of the ancient beliefs reported by Herodotus and Pomponius Mela, that there was a tribe of people called the Nuri, who transformed into wolves once a year. Could this have been a reference to these ancient fighters of witches, these hounds of God? Could these good sorcerers have survived from antiquity all the way to the 18th century? And if so, might they remain among us even today, secretly working to protect the world from the dark magic of hell's minions? If you enjoyed this tale and want to hear others of its kind, exploring the blind spots in history, the mysteries of the past, the hoaxes and conspiracy theories, and claims of the supernatural that make history so intriguing and puzzling, listen to Historical Blindness wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Halloween!
20: Hello.
21: Hi. I'm Tom. I'm Andrea.
22: This is We Drink and We Know Things. the
21: podcast.
22: We are a comedy podcast.
21: But we talk about all things spooky, paranormal, true crime, conspiracy theories, all that good stuff.
22: And really quickly, we just wanted to say thanks so much to the folks over at Hillbilly Horror Stories, Jerry and Tracy, for having us out this evening.
21: For inviting us to be a part of this big Halloween, spectacular episode. We're so excited to be a part of it.
22: This evening, we're going to be telling you the story called Something Comes Into My Room Every Night by Stephen Gray of Lighthouse Horror. And you can find more of his work at Lighthouse Horror on YouTube.
21: And this is a creepypasta. Yes. Let's do this. When I was seven years old, my mother and I moved to a small town in Massachusetts. It was a rough time for me as my father had just up and left a few weeks before. My mom told me that he had taken a better job somewhere. She told me that he still loved and cared about me, but even at such a young age, I understood that he had left us.
22: It was Halloween week, and I started at my new school on the 25th of October. As a stubborn 7-year-old, I insisted on walking there myself. My mother frowned, thought it over, then agreed with one caveat.
16: Alright,
21: as long as we walk the path together every night before school starts, and you promise to stay on the trail.
22: She had bought a small, two-bedroom cottage less than a mile from my school, so it wouldn't be far. It was a nice little place, but I guess with my father gone, nothing could really feel like home. The evening before I began school, the two of us walked into the forest behind our house. Although the sun had started to set, the path was clearly lit.
21: What a perfect way to school. Can you believe this house was still available? She said.
22: I nodded, but said nothing.
21: We used to have family here, you know. I really like this place my mom said, smiling.
22: The next morning, I made my way into the kitchen and was greeted with a warm smile and pancakes. As I sat down to eat, my mother must have noticed that I looked nervous and sat down next to me.
23: Don't
21: worry, you'll make friends here. I have a good feeling, she said. I made my way down the path just as we had practiced every night. When I arrived at the school, a tall teacher with thick glasses greeted me at the door and helped me into the classroom. I sat down among ten other students and the teacher began to speak about what the year was going to be like and what we would learn.
22: No one was mean to me or anything but no one really spoke to me either. All the kids were so busy talking about their costumes for Halloween that they barely even noticed a new kid there.
21: There was this one little girl though that said hello. She sat two rows back from the other children and I figured that maybe she was new to school as well. She was very pretty with brown hair and glasses. And as I glanced back, she caught my gaze and gave me a big smile. I tried to smile back, but she was so pretty that it was hard to not be shy. Turning back around, I tried to listen to the teacher, but I was really just thinking about her.
24: School
22: ended for the day at 3 o'clock. I grabbed my bag and rushed outside towards the path to my house, very anxious to run home and tell my mom about the pretty girl that had smiled at me.
23: Hurrying
21: home down the path, I suddenly tripped over something and I fell hard. Scraping my knee, sitting up to examine my injury, I looked back to see what had made me stumble.
22: I saw the biggest crow I had ever seen. Strange, too. What was wrong with its eyes? As I made my way closer to examine it, I heard something behind me.
21: Hello? I know you're from school, she said. Surprise, I look up quickly to see the pretty girl from class. Wondering if she had seen me fall... I was embarrassed and got to my feet quickly. My knee hurt pretty badly, but I was more worried about how I looked to her.
22: Uh, yeah, I think I saw you today in class. My name is Jimmy, I said.
21: Smiling back, she replied, I'm Margaret.
22: We walked together down the trail.
21: How's your leg? She asked.
22: Oh, it's okay, I said, trying to act tough. You live down here too, huh?
21: She told me that her family had lived in this town for some time and that she also had a path behind her home leading through the forest to the school. We were instantly friends. As we got to my house, she surprised me by asking, Can I see what your house looks like? You made it sound so nice.
22: I quickly smiled and knocked on my front door. My mom answered, Very surprised to see Margaret next to me.
21: Smiling, she said, Well, you don't waste time making friends, do you, Jim? Are you going to introduce me to the young lady or just stand there?
22: My face turned red as I muttered out, this is Margaret. She lives around here, and we met at school today. Trying not to show my excitement, I acted cool. She wanted to come over, I said.
21: Hello, ma'am. I wanted to see your house. My family lives here, too, Margaret smiled and said. Come on in, dear. I just this instant finished a batch of cookies, my mom replied.
22: As the three of us sat around the kitchen table talking, we got on the subject of Halloween.
21: "What are you going as Margaret? my mom asked. I'm going to be a witch this year. I heard they are scary, Margaret said.
22: Witches aren't scary, I quickly stated.
21: Smiling again, Margaret corrected herself. Well, I was going to go as a witch, but my family is out of town this weekend and I don't really... Well, I don't really have a place to stay yet. It's a business trip and they said I'm too young to go with them. They asked my regular babysitter, but she got sick yesterday and now... Well, if it's all right with your parents, you would be more than welcome to stay here over the weekend and go trick-or-treating with us.
22: It was at that moment I realized that I literally had the best mom in the world.
21: What do you think, Jim? My mom asked, holding back a smile.
22: Yeah, that's a great idea, I said. My mom drove Margaret home to meet her parents and ask them permission for her to stay at our home over the weekend. When my mom got back, I asked her how it had went.
21: It went great, my mom said. I think her mother and aunt take care of her. They live in a beautiful little cottage down the trail. They invited me in, and we talked for quite a while. Both of them thought it was a great idea. I do have one question, though. You have a crush on this girl, correct?
22: Pretending I didn't hear her, I quickly ran over to my room and closed the door. Got homework. Love you, I said, a little embarrassed. That night, I tried to sleep, but was too excited for Halloween. It was just a few days off, and I had already made a friend. This weekend was going to be great. Thinking about how this might really be a new start, I began noticing something in the corner of my room. At first, I thought I was dreaming, but then slowly my eyes began to focus. There was a tall man with long, dark hair and a gray beard. His eyes were piercing and focused. They stared unblinking out the window.
21: My body started to tremble in fear. I hid under the blankets, pretending it wasn't real, and praying he hadn't seen me. Peeking out from under, I almost screamed out in terror, He was just floating there, holding a huge axe, with what looked like blood on it. I wanted to scream and run out of the room, but I was frozen. I couldn't make a sound.
22: I don't know how I fell asleep, but when I woke the next day, he was gone, and it was like it had never happened. I wanted to tell my mom, but I just couldn't for some reason. I don't know why.
21: The week went by quickly, except for every single night the man in my room would return, always holding the large axe in his hands. Some nights, he would just peer out the window, and other nights, he would pace back and forth. I could see his mouth move, but no words came out. I watched him in fear and awe, and the night before Halloween, he finally turned his head and looked directly at me. He locked eyes with mine, and he took a step forward. I pulled the blankets over my head and started to shake in fear. Was this real?
22: Was I going crazy? Halloween day came, and I almost told Margaret about the man in my house. I felt guilty for not telling her, but I was afraid she would think I was crazy or something. And looking forward to this weekend was the only thing I had been happy about in some time.
21: Margaret and I went house to house that night. I tried to have a good time, but wondered what was going to happen tonight when she stayed at my house. Would the man come again? Would he see her? She asked me what was wrong, and I pretended it was nothing.
22: As we got back to my house, my mom had prepared a sleeping space for us in the living room. Margaret was going to sleep on the couch, and I had a blanket spread out on the floor. We compared Candy, both agreeing we were tired. My mom was sleeping in the next room and told us to wake her if we needed anything at all.
21: That night, as Margaret and I went to sleep, the wind started to howl against the windows. I told myself that I had never seen the man outside of my room, and I thought we would be safe here felt guilty but it was just so nice having a friend with me at night i couldn't face him again alone the storm became louder and louder as the clock struck midnight staring at the ceiling i was starting to become more tired when i heard margaret ask jimmy are you awake
22: i'm up i said
21: i can't sleep it's freezing do you have another blanket she asked
22: i told her i had one in my room then froze realizing But I had just said, I would have to go back into my room. Searching for any other option, I knocked on my mom's door for blankets, but she didn't reply back. The storm was so loud that even knocking didn't wake her. I thought about yelling her name, but realized how childish that would make me look to Margaret.
21: Didn't you say you had a blanket in your room? She asked again.
22: I took a deep breath and replied, yes, I'll get it for you.
21: Opening the door slowly, I saw no sign of any ghost or monster. I held my breath and quickly ran over to the far closet to find an extra blanket. Fumbling through my clothes, I paused as I heard the door close behind me.
22: The wind now almost shook the house, and it took every ounce of my courage to turn around. There was no ghost, though. It was just Margaret. "'Oh, it's just you,' I said.
21: Margaret smiled and replied, "'Who are you expecting, the boogeyman?'
22: It was then I noticed that something was off about her. As she locked the door behind her, I realized she was taller than before. Much taller. With the door closed, it was very dark in my room. But were her eyes... red? I thought I could see two small red dots looking back from where her eyes should be.
21: She laughed and softly said, You shouldn't have let me in, Jimmy.
22: Margaret? This isn't funny, I stammered.
21: I find it very funny she said.
22: As she made her way across the room, I saw a large knife in her hand. The moon shone across her face, and what was once a beautiful young girl was now an old, haggard-looking woman with a hideous smile on her face.
21: "'Want a hug, Jimmy?' she asked.
22: I backed into the corner of my room and screamed out for my mother.
21: "'She can't hear you, Jimmy. She's never going to hear you,' Margaret said.
22: Having nowhere to go, I watched her get closer and closer, I was so scared now that I couldn't even move. All I could do was watch as she lifted the knife over her head and smiled wickedly.
21: What happened next I will remember for the rest of my life. Before she could bring the knife down, something caught her gaze. She looked over towards the window and sunk back in fear. She screamed out and fell onto the floor, trying desperately to run, but he had stopped her.
22: Holding on to her with one hand, the tall man brought down the axe on her neck. She screamed in agony and fear, her neck now half off as she still tried to crawl away. Placing his foot down roughly on her back, he pinned her to the floor. He then brought the axe down hard again with both hands, severing her neck almost entirely. There was a strong pull and then a grisly ripping sound.
21: I heard a horrible pop as the man pulled her head completely off her body. All I could do was watch as he opened the window and carried her body and head into the forest. Stunned, I looked out. I could barely see, yet I just stood there and watched until he disappeared completely.
22: I tried waking my mother, but she couldn't seem to hear as I shouted her name. After I checked to see that she was safe, I went back into my room and just stood at the window. I think I was in some kind of shock. After a while, I heard her door open. Running over to her, I hugged her close.
21: Good morning. Did you two have fun last night? She asked, seemingly having heard nothing.
22: At a loss for words, I slowly just nodded my head.
21: Tell Margaret that breakfast will be ready in two shakes. Is she still asleep on the couch? My mom asked.
22: Uh, I replied, mumbling something about her mom already having picked her up.
21: Then my mom went into the kitchen to start breakfast. I wondered what I would say if her parents did actually show up to collect her. In the unlikely event that her parents were human, they would probably be thankful she was gone. That year was the start of a new chapter of my life. I now knew that demons, witches, ghosts, evil things, weren't just fairy tales. They were real.
22: I'm older now, and I have a family of my own. My son was born a few months back, and I've never spoken a word of any of this to my wife. I've never found the right moment to tell her.
21: One last thing. A few days after Halloween as a child, my mom had taken out a photo album and sat down next to me. I watched as she casually thumbed through the photos, and then I stopped her.
22: "'Who is that man?' I asked.
21: "'Him? That's your great-grandfather!' she replied.
22: I stared at the photo. It was him. I slept better after that. I would still see him from time to time, staring out my window into the darkness. Margaret wasn't the last evil thing I would come across." and I now worry about the safety of my newborn son.
21: It's Halloween night as I stand over my son's crib and stare out into the shadows of the forest beyond. I can feel something coming for us, but they don't know one thing.
6: We aren't alone. alone.
1: Hello. My name is Tyler Bell, and I'm the host and creator of the West Side Fairy Tales. The story you're about to hear is the tale of a couple who owns many things, but they find, as many others do, that stuff you own might end up owning you. If you like the story you're about to hear, you can learn more about my podcast and hear more stories at westsidefairytales.com. Now, without further ado, tonight's story, Stuff. This is a letter to the outside. I think, I hope, at least. It's been a while since I saw the outside. The windows are choked up with wine bottles from Mira's old collection. She liked to stick candles in the necks and light them. It gave the kitchen this sort of little Italy vibe she liked to brag about to Jeanette and the girls. Now the glass just throws muddy light across the room. Dusty glass turns it all green and brown. Real, real ugly. The drapes are another thing. They're all twisted now. No idea how they got that way. We bought them in 92, I think. It was on the fishing trip we took to Morocco, the one where we didn't actually fish at all. I don't know why we called it that, a fishing trip. We just shopped. All we ever seemed to do was shop. The curtains, the twisted up ones, we bought them in a little gray stone building with a weird sign. I can't remember what it looked like, other than Mira called it two clams and a candle. I I guess that's what it looked like then, though I, I can't really picture it. When we bought the drapes, we kept making jokes about that sign, but I can't really remember any of them. But I can feel the hurt in my belly, right below the ribs. That ache you get from really good laughter. I can even remember Mira's face. She was wearing that broad straw hat I'd bought her in Paris. It's still here in the living room with the other hats. There's a stack of them on the second couch, arranged by the hat band color so that they flow together in a sort of rainbow. It's a real neat effect, a big hit at parties. I don't have parties anymore. Even when we had the parties, I didn't have them. They just sort of happened. Mira would marshal the resources of the house, making sure the chiffon serving platters were ready and loaded with fancy meats and cheeses from Whole Foods. Or were they Faberware? Sometimes they were Faberware, I'm sure of it. Yeah, they were Faberware, because we got those from Home Goods either the third or fourth trip out to get the Melon Baller. Fucking Melon Baller. Jesus, that was a debacle. You see, Mira had been watching all these cooking shows, and she got on a real bender about tiramisu. The garnish was what sold the dish, she'd tell me, relating some gossip about a party Jeanette had had where something melted at the wrong time. Jeanette actually came by last week. I think she's still in the bathroom. Anyway, Jeanette, real bitch, by the way, Jeanette made a recipe with these little shit. Anyway, Jeanette, Real bitch, by the way. Jeanette made a recipe with these little ice cream balls on toothpicks in the center of the tiramisu. Tiramisu is a complicated cake, if you didn't know. We still have some in the fridge, though I can't remember when the last time she made any was. The days have really been getting away from me. But like I was saying, these ice cream balls would melt if they were too small. Something about the way they rested atop each other and the cool surface of the cake kept them from turning to slush. The point is, the melon baller for the ice cream needed to be about 13 millimeters across and have the little mechanical piece that scoops out the uh, uh, the scoop. Jeanette's was 10 millimeters across, no good, and so were the two we had at our place. We had a nice melon baller for guests and the like, and the sort of everyday one we kept in the knife and fork drawer. Long story short, we found the right melon baller, and Mira's tiramisu was a rounding success. Only three people had any leaving well. Most of a tiramisu behind, but she got a lot of compliments on the presentation and Jeanette looked miffed. Fun story about the melon ballers. Well, it's not a story, it's just a thing I do. When people come over for parties, I'll make an issue about getting the bottle opener out of the knife and fork drawer. Then I'll pull out the melon baller. I'll look at the guys and say, Geez, Aren't these things always in the way? They'll agree and smile, and then I'll pull out the second melon baller. Oh, wow, you have two of those? This is where things are really starting to heat up. I'll laugh and rub the back of my head right along the hairline. That's what sells it, the faux embarrassment. Then I'll say, you think that's bad? Then I'll go to the silverware drawer and pull out the third melon baller and say, here's the fancy one. It's always good for a chuckle. If you've got three melon ballers, you've you've got to get your money back on that investment. It's sad to say, but the line doesn't always go over well. Sometimes I just get a polite smile, or people will stop paying attention to me before I get to the third or even second melon baller. There's really no way to prepare for that. You just have to hope it doesn't happen. But there are a lot of things you can prepare for. I have a second wallet, for instance, that I keep in case of emergencies, particularly if I get robbed walking in a bad neighborhood. I don't visit places like that, but you never know. I keep the wallet stocked with $50, a few old credit cards, and a state identification card. I used to just keep 5 or $6 in the wallet until a police friend of mine said that small amount of cash might just upset a mugger, given that I look wealthy on the worst of days. To complete the ruse, I put some of my old credit cards in the wallet and even got a second identification card from the state. This had the negative effect of making the wallet too important to lose, so I keep it in my left back pocket at all times now. My real wallet is in my back right pocket, so there's the added effect of evening things out when I sit, which I've read is good for your back. Miro was complaining about a bad back when she went into the bedroom a couple weeks back. There was a lot of shifting around in the air after she closed the door. And I haven't had the heart to go look. Luckily, we installed a few dozen security cameras in the house, if anything happened to her. The security service we hired to monitor the cameras will surely keep me posted. Secretly, I'm afraid they might have already called. But I can't find the phones anymore. At least the ones we have plugged into the walls. The walls are equally hard to find at times. A portion of the study's northern wall, I'm writing this in the study, is completely covered in plastic and steel rotary telephones. They are in a variety of colors, though most are red. Mira loves the color red. The curtains we bought in Morocco were red. Are red, despite the twisty thing they've been doing. A lot of our stuff has been doing this twisty thing. It's unnerving the way everything seems to be molded together at times the way the stacks and piles droop over top you when you walk. I used to melt army men, those little green guys with a magnifying glass when I was a child. I would melt half my army men, sitting in the noonday sun at Father's Place in Corsica. They would turn blackish and stoop over, dripping melted plastic like blood and viscera onto their bases. I believed this turned them into zombies and I would have my army men battle it out with the zombie horde. Jeanette said much the same thing when she came to visit. She said other things, of course. Where's Mira? And why haven't you returned the pewter chess set you borrowed last Christmas? After those things, she said our place was a mess and asked what happened. I told her we'd been shopping, because Mira had started feeling bad after the curtains started doing their twisty thing. She had nodded and suggested that perhaps it was time we finally had a child. Jeanette had a child when she was nineteen, shortly before she was married. Her son is a biomechanical engineer for Blackwell now, despite her dropping him onto the concrete in front of her house when he wasn't even a year old. I had been there. I had seen. She had been drinking. Jeanette's child's success was her success, given the way she talked about it, and aside from Tiffany's auctions and tiramisu, the woman didn't talk about anything else. Until she came to visit. Then she couldn't stop talking about all our new stuff. She went on and on, asking, how could we fit this much shit in here, and where is everybody supposed to walk in this place? Aren't you two hosting the derby party this year? Then she touched a box of new Christmas lights. Well, a dozen or so boxes piled all the way to the ceiling. Her hand came back a pulpy mess, stripping blood onto our die-cut marble floor and trailing little ribbons of hand meat. She went pale and then screamed a little bit and then went paler. Then she decided she didn't want to be here anymore, but it was too late. The door was gone. She didn't know the door had started to come and go on its own right around the time the curtains started doing their twisty thing. I'd wanted to tell her because I was trying to squeeze by her to get outside. but She just pushed in like she always did, yammering on about how great it was that she had a successful child. I really don't like Jeanette. She's a bitch, but I couldn't be rude to a lady. Once she found she couldn't leave, I told her she could probably clean up in the restroom. She turned a shade of pale I didn't even know she possessed, then excused herself to use the restroom. She pushed aside a stack of De Beers jewelry boxes, half a year's salary that, and that's the last I saw of her. I think she figured she could slip out the bathroom window, but I'm, Pretty sure she didn't. After Jeanette left, that was pretty much it as far as visitors. I spend my time cruising the internet and using our home gym to stay in shape. I don't know what for, but I like to be prepared. I order things and add them to the piles. I eat ancient tiramisu and am loath to count the calories. I think our possessions get lonely. Mira was lonely even though she was with me. She told me that a lot. Alex, I don't feel like you're here. And I'd say, well, then where the heck am I? Then she'd hop on Amazon or something and buy stuff. New stuff, old stuff. We have a big house and there was a lot of space to fill. She started getting headaches, so I hung those old twisty curtains to cheer her up. Thing is, I'm pretty sure I only hung them in one room. There were only the two. Oh, well, you live and you learn. I just bought a new exercise bike, the kind where Google shows you on a map how much of the Tour de France you've just completed. I'm pretty damn good at it, but I don't think I'll be riding into Paris with a glass of champagne anytime soon. I'm riding this just in case the worst happens, so people will know what to do with this stuff. You know, you can't take it with you. Well, that was my story stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, you can learn more about me at westsidefairytales.com. Thanks a bunch for listening, and until next time, as always, stay safe out there.
25: To see one of the well-known people in Plainfield, well-liked person in Plainfield, hanging there, Upside down and uh, dressed out like a deer. Uh, it's hard to explain how a man uh, feels when he sees something like that. Welcome, welcome
26: to Serial Spirits, the podcast. I am your host, Brendan Shea, and with me as always, is the beautiful, the lovely.
27: Annie Weaves, how's it going, Shea Bay?
26: It is amazing, Annie. We are a podcast that focuses on true crime, the paranormal, and anything mysterious. It's almost like if Robert Stack were still around and he was in podcast form. That's us, Serial Spirits, the podcast.
27: We're podcast in a trench coat.
26: In a trench coat.
27: That's exactly right. Coming out of the shadows. Coming out of the shadows. So, Shea, it's Halloween month.
26: It is Halloween, and we are super excited. I know you love Halloween more than anybody I know.
27: I do love Halloween. So today, for this special Halloween episode, we want to bring you one of our most deranged stories that we've ever researched. Shay, do you remember the movie Silence of the Lambs?
26: Yes, and I noticed the pun you put in there, deranged.
27: Exactly. What about the villain from the movie, Buffalo Bill?
26: Yeah, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, I know him. He he has, he's got some... Thick skin in the back for you if you need some.
27: <laughs> did you know that his character was actually based on a real person and his absolutely insane crimes?
26: Yes, yes, I did. So I'm, you're just giving me hints here. I'm assuming this is the guy we're talking about?
27: This is the guy. Let us uh, introduce yes. you to the life and crimes of the deeply disturbed man dubbed the Plainfield Ghoul, Ed Gein.
26: Oh, Ed Gein, it's Halloween! Time for Ed Gein!
28: On a frigid November night in 1957, a murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Within minutes,
27: deputies found a headless, nude, mutilated female body, Hanging upside down in a shed. Ed Gein was born in 1906 in Plainfield, Wisconsin, on a remote farm to George and Augusta Gein. George was an alcoholic who couldn't keep a job, and Augusta came to despise him for this. She segregated her family from society as she felt the influence of the outside world contributed to their family problems. Augusta was a devout Lutheran who also preached the evil ways of the world to her children, including the belief that all women, besides her, of course, Were vile and promiscuous and carried sexually transmitted diseases.
26: Them hooers.
27: George died in 1940, leaving the farm in the hands of Ed and his brother Henry. In 1944, Ed and Henry were burning vegetation on the farm when the fire went out of control and the local fire department was called. It was then that Ed told firefighters they could not find Henry. The fire was extinguished and Henry's body was found. He suffered no burns, and the immediate cause of death was named as heart failure, but the coroner later changed his cause of death to asphyxiation. It was later rumored that when Henry's body was found, he was said to have had bruises on his head. Ed and his mother were now alone on the farm, and soon Augusta suffered numerous strokes that left her bedridden, Ed becoming her sole caregiver. She continued to preach the evilness of the world to Ed, encouraging him to keep himself from others. Their worlds revolved around one another until her death in 1945. Ed was now completely alone, and he needed to do something to fill his loneliness. He began visiting the local cemeteries late at night, first to his mother's grave. He then began perusing local newspapers for the obituaries of women and visited their graves as well. Ed stated that most of the time, he just sat in the cemeteries in a dazed-like state. But his M.O. soon changed. Ed soon began digging up these graves and removing the bodies, taking them to his home, and a twisted sort of harvest began.
26: So, as most serial killers go, they kind of stalk victims. So he like went to the cemetery to like stalk his victims.
27: He went to the local newspaper to the obituaries to stalk <laughs> yeah, his that's, first that's victims. Kinda, that's kind
26: of that's kind of nuts, ain't it?
27: It's a little nuts. It's
26: mommy issues and stalking.
27: Do 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 do. Mommy issue alert. He created a woman suit from his mother's remains, skinning her and pinning the skin up in the house to literally, quote, crawl into her skin. Ed's grave robbing continued for more than a decade until a living victim, Bernice Warden, went missing in 1957. Bernice worked at a local hardware store and was reported missing by her son on the day of her disappearance. According to witnesses, a pickup truck resembling Ed's was seen leaving the store earlier that day, and the last sales receipt on file was for a gallon of antifreeze, which is what Ed had told Bernice's son he was in the store to purchase. Police went to Ed's home, and the horrors they discovered were far beyond anything they ever could have imagined. Ed had created his own shrine to the dead. Found throughout Ed's house were, listener discretion advised from this point on, 13 and up please, whole human bones and fragments, a wastebasket and lampshade made from human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on ed's bedpost bowls made from human skulls a corset made from a female torso skinned from shoulders to waist leggings made from human skin oh my God! masks made from the skin of female heads
26: so the whispers were he he was like the first whisper he was the first whisperer from the walking dead
27: the skin and skull of another local missing woman named mary hogan Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack and her heart in a plastic bag. Female genitalia in a shoebox. A belt made from female human nipples. Four noses. A pair of lips on a window shade drawstring and fingernails made from female fingers.
26: How many times do you think he went to the store or the bar wearing his nipple belt? Too
27: many times to count, probably, and nobody noticed. A county sheriff's deputy discovered Bernice Warden's decapitated body in a shed on Gein's property, hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes around her wrist. The torso was, quote, dressed out like a deer. She had been shot with a twenty-two caliber rifle and the mutilations were made post-mortem. Ed was arrested and questioned, not only about the gruesome findings on his property, but also about several other missing women in the area. Ed confessed to digging the graves and murdering Bernice and Mary, but he was reportedly assaulted by a local deputy during the questioning, the officer banging Ed's face and head into a brick wall. The confessions were later ruled inadmissible due to the assault. On November 21, 1957, Gein was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder in Washara County Court, where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Gein was diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent, thus unfit for trial. He was sent to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, a maximum security facility in Walpon, Wisconsin, and was later transferred to the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. In 1968, doctors at the facility where Ed was being held reported that he was now fit to stand trial giving details about the death of Bernice Warden, now stating that her death had actually been an accidental shooting. A second trial was held, and Ed was found guilty on one count of murder by a lone judge. However, a secondary trial to determine Ed's competence was held, and he was again found legally insane and returned to the psychiatric hospital, where he would live out the rest of his days. Ed Gein died at the Mendota State Hospital from lung cancer in 1984 at the age of 77. Ed's home and 195-acre property, including all of his belongings, were scheduled to be auctioned to the public in March 1958. The local townspeople feared that the property would become some type of ghoulish tourist attraction. On March twentieth, 1958, Ed's home mysteriously burned to the ground, destroying whatever secrets that were still held there. His truck, which had been used to transport the bodies he dug from local cemeteries, was auctioned off and purchased by a carnival owner who turned the vehicle into a sideshow attraction and charged the public 25 cents to see it. Over the years, Ed Gein's story has been detailed numerous times in publications and on film, including the basis for Norman Bates' character in Psycho, Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Shay, our personal favorite, the 1974 movie Deranged, in which Ed's character yes. was played by the creepy old neighbor man from our childhood favorite, Home Alone.
26: Yes, he was. And he actually was even creepier. I thought he was in Creepier and Home Alone, but he was still pretty creepy and deranged. He if was... you haven't seen Deranged, go watch Deranged. It's, it's a it's, fantastic it's, it's, purchase.
27: Yeah. It's 1974 horror at its finest.
26: Sucks, but it's good. It, it's, a, it's a good one. It's a good one.
27: So Shay, Ed Gein, in a nutshell, go.
26: Crazy, solitude, fits every description of a creepy old man who took care of his mother for his whole life and never got out and... To the real world.
27: There you go. So there's the story of Ed Gein, short, sweet, and to the point for Halloween.
26: You guys want more? Check out Serial Spirits on SoundCloud, iTunes, and on ParanormalWarehouse.com. We release an episode every week, so check us out. And until then, be aware and be safe.
25: frank nature.
17: You're listening to Freak Nation, the podcast that explores the fringes of society, one city at a time. I'm Christina. I'm Amanda.
11: And I'm Tim.
17: And we're from Freak Nation podcast, and we're going to tell y'all a quick story. Yep. Tim, where are we going?
11: To the Elfin Forest.
17: (laughs) It sounds like something (laughs) out of Lord of the Rings going on.
11: (laughs) The Elfin Forest also has a couple areas known as Quest Haven and Harmony Grove. Oh
17: my gosh. So where Biz? is the Elfin Forest?
11: Uh just southwest of Escondido, California.
17: So Middle Earth. Exactly. <laughs>
11: okay. Um, said to be located in a peaceful bastion of suburbia filled with beautiful hiking trails and campgrounds, says Backpackverse.com.
17: Ooh. Well, this sounds pleasant.
11: They warn to not be fooled by the names.
17: Okay.
11: okay. <laughs> this is one of the most haunted regions of California. Oh. oh. There are hundreds, even thousands, of stories, legends, and sightings of paranormal entities.
17: Thousands? Mm-hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> like you hear about a handful.
11: Right. Uh ghosts and specters have a very strong influence within the forest. And there is said to also be an evil witch abusing her powers.
7: Ooh. See, I don't mess with witches. Mm-hmm. Especially ones that abuse their power.
11: <laughs> right. <laughs> like if she introduced herself to you that way, you'd be like, "Oh,
17: all right, hey, I'm
11: going to go over here."
17: Yeah. She's yeah. like, "Hi, I'm Sabrina. I'm an evil witch that abuses my power."
11: <laughs> and I am now thirsty. I'm I love how you,
17: I love how you named her Sabrina. I know. <laughs> I couldn't think of
11: anything. <laughs> In Harmony Grove, there is a sect of psychics and other occult practitioners. They love to speak with visitors about the many paranormal influences on the land, and they hold many of the secrets and stories of the forest.
17: I don't know how if I, I want to, like, <laughs> seek those people out. Exactly.
11: Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't either. Yeah. There's so many stories about even how those people are still there. Oh. Yeah.
17: Are they friends with the evil witch? I wouldn't
11: say friends, but, I mean, if she doesn't bother them, then they have to be somewhat in cahoots.
17: Do they work for Sauron? (laughs) (laughs) That's all I need to know. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, you put us in the Elfin Forest. We're two women (laughs) with Lord of the Rings tattoos, so. (laughs) Right. You made your choices.
11: So I just wanted to give you a small sample of one of the many stories. Okay. A family of three went into the woods and didn't come back for days. It wasn't really a big deal at that time because it was a different time and a more violent time. So I guess people would disappear all the time.
29: Oh, wow. Okay.
11: So, um, are we really
29: do we know like the time
17: period? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Just the time when people disappeared all the time. So the 70s. I would assume like this is, yeah, really far back. They're Um, like, the Thomases went into the woods. Uh, We haven't seen them, but that's completely normal. Okay. Okay. So we're talking
7: the way, way back.
11: Like
17: their wagon tongue could have broken. Okay. Now they're eating each other. Got it.
11: Well, apparently they were like just hanging out, going through the woods for the day. Anyway, eventually, only the woman returned, claiming that her husband and son had been murdered. Okay. She said they were attacked, and as her family was torn to shreds by these attackers, she was the only one that got
6: away.
7: That stuff doesn't work according to forensic files. <laughs> you know.
17: <laughs> we watch it every night, so we're fully aware. Yes, you're Well-versed. professionals. Yeah. yeah.
11: The townsfolk nursed her back to health, and during this time, the woman spent a long time with old books marked with strange characters and her nights meeting with even stranger people from local Indian tribes and even further out than local.
17: Is this the origin story of the evil witch?
11: Ooh. You would think so, but no.
17: (gasps) Oh, okay. Okay.
11: Eventually, she became a cold, angry, even enraged woman. Oh. Eventually, she said she was, quote-unquote, ready.
17: Oh. Um (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) Her deeds drove her mad. Right. Evil woman.
11: (laughs) She dressed in all white and was never seen again. Nobody in town knew what she meant when she said that, but they had watched her like turn into this other person and everyone was like, Okay, you can go ahead
17: (laughs) and go into the Could you imagine being in town and like the weird lady? comes out into the middle of town, gets on her soapbox, and just goes, I'm ready. I just imagine her hair all, like, ratted and gnarled (laughs) and her clothes, like, disheveled and
8: torn.
11: Well, apparently she, like, chose this white outfit. As the years passed, hikers and campers would see her floating through the land. Sometimes she moved incredibly fast and sometimes achingly slow. When you try to talk to her, she vanishes.
17: Oh. Uh-uh. So she dressed to become oh, okay.
29: a specter. <laughs> she yes. Did. <laughs> <laughs> she did. She, she, she tailored the part. This yeah. is intent at its finest. <laughs>
11: she is also said to appear after a murder or suicide has taken place in the area.
17: Oh. oh. Okay. So she's a soul collector. Yeah. Ew, don't say that. <laughs> oh, God, that's so awful. She's collecting. She was uh. ready to start reaping the harvest
11: yeah they say that she's just angry and they theorize that she's you know forever looking for the people that killed her family but i don't think that would be your way to get revenge i think she went mad and decided she'd become something else
17: well if she really did see her family like torn apart literally who can blame her for going completely nuts
6: i mean Yeah.
11: Well, if revenge is what she was after, then I would have to assume that what she saw killing her family, she didn't think it was human.
17: What if she's just a badass bitch in the forest, like, (laughs) chopping down monsters that are coming out? Oh my god. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, that's definitely a different take.
11: She didn't pick the right outfit.
17: No. (laughs) Well, White is quote-unquote good. Yeah. I wonder if the
8: occultists know more about her. Now oh, Amanda
17: wants to meet the occultists. <laughs> Trust me,
11: there's so many stories, like I said, and there's so many that you could talk about. There's stories about them, too. So
17: so we'll have to revisit the Elfin Forest, is what you're saying?
11: hmm As well as Questhaven, which I didn't even get into, and Harmony Grove.
17: I love the names.
11: <laughs> me, too.
17: I would live in Harmony Grove
8: if it was (laughs) You don't know anything about Harmony Grove. So don't go saying that you would live there. (laughs) I would
11: live in Quest Haven.
17: I would live in Elfin Forest, actually. I'm going to wear all... I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) I'm going to put on my white dress. And go out into the open forest. Make sure to tousle your hair first. Oh, that'll be easy. Give me a week (laughs) in the forest (laughs) and my hair will be... (laughs) A day. (laughs) But we would definitely like to thank Tracy and Jerry for letting us come on to their show. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.
11: See ya.
6: Hey, y'all, this is
0: Frank the Bigfoot, and you're listening to the Paranormal Punchers.
29: Hey, friends.
24: Welcome, Paranormal Punchers.
29: I'm Mark. I'm Alicia. I'm Rana.
24: I'm Nash. I'm Dave. And on this podcast, we have a letter... Uh, From a listener who dabbled with a Ouija board Mm -hmm. and some strange things happened. Mm. Uh, We at Paranormal Punchers, we talk about all things paranormal with a lighthearted approach. Um, Hope you enjoy this. Now, this was a letter that was actually sent to us by a longtime listener. Um, We're going to have Lish read it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead.
30: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So a few weeks ago, my eight-year-old, who recently has been getting into the paranormal herself... Really wanted me to get out the Ouija board. Being the person I am, I was pretty excited to get started. We got the board out and started small, asking basic questions like, is anyone there? Well, after a few minutes, the planchet started going towards yes. As soon as my daughter saw this, she freaked out and ran off. So I put it all away without closing the session. Uh Uh-oh. Little did I know, this could have started something more. So after about a week, strange things started happening around my house. A few things started coming up missing, money, keys even, some important documents. I never really thought it was paranormal until a few days later. I awoke from a nap and went to the bathroom. And while in there, I heard a little girl thinking it was a friend of one of my girls. I started talking to her for a few minutes. Then I told her I would be out in a minute to see what... What all she needed. When I got out, no one was there. I had a small panic attack trying to find someone, but no one was home. I called my wife who informed me that no one has been there, and they were out shopping. Since then, I've heard the voice again, but it's hard to make out everything. Anyway, my question is, could this have occurred from the Ouija session, and how can I make it stop?
24: Okay. Okay. Um, one thing he didn't include uh, that he had uh, private messaged me uh, was he also when this was going down, uh, certain nights he could hear the pitter patter of little feet oh. and kind of giggling, uh, that wasn't his daughter because his daughter was in bed, so he was getting really terrified, mm-hmm. rightfully uh, so. Oh my gosh! Right now, a uh, couple things here, Dave. Do you ever uh, are you ever on the toilet and then just having conversations <laughs> with, your, with your with your kid through the door?
9: <laughs>
2: no.
24: Right, I was just gonna say, I was like. Usually just like, hey, I'll, I'll, when I'll, I'm done, I'll be out. Right, right,
9: right. Right, now. Okay. <laughs>
24: <laughs> um, now, now, Ronna, you have experience with the uh, Ouija board thing uh, and stuff. But um, would you ever, I mean, playing with the eight-year-old, is that probably a little too young to start?
29: Even though on the uh, Milton Bradley <laughs> box, it says for ages eight and up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of crazy because most eight-year-olds, unfortunately, aren't mentally or emotionally or spiritually mature enough to even really know what they're doing now there might be a few acceptables but for the majority of kids no i definitely wouldn't Mm -hmm. but i mean i i want it right right yeah
31: now is it is it the case where children have like a like a more of a, a purity in their soul so they're they're cleaner, brighter than, than the rest of us. I'm thinking of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, if there was like a brightness to somebody's soul that like the children have, because they're so innocent and young mm-hmm. that they're, they're the, they're the cleanest. They could actually act as more like a, like a lighthouse to bring something from the other side because of their brightness. I, 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 the...
29: I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. that, that's true. Eight is starting to get a, a little bit borderline towards conformity, though, of being conformed to this world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say much younger children. Like okay. are more open three, to the... four, that are... They have, they have only left the spirit world not too long ago. Right, right. So they're still very much in tune with it. But eight is getting a little bit more... Kind
31: of on that borderline. Yeah. Cause think, I see, I see. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, I was just imagining that that child, you know, being his daughter, just being like a beacon, bringing something across that would see similarity that way it was a spirit of a small girl or a small boy mm-hmm. coming to, well, coming now, to play. So, no, or, that's what
32: he, he
24: heard the, the voice of a small girl. Right, he thought he was having a conversation through the bathroom door with a small girl, but it is possible, right, that it was not. Uh, it could have been hypothetically maybe a demon uh, just that's putting true. on that voice to, to, to uh, like a false sense of security uh, for this person, right, um, and it, I mean that would be really scary to open up the door and nobody's in the house. I told you, but I you had just had a, same
29: thing happen to me. Yeah, yeah,
24: that would wow. I, to have a full conversation to realize, like, because uh, it no literally
29: one sounded like her. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I know exactly what he's saying.
24: Now mm-hmm. uh, we did reach out to uh, Ronna, um based on her experience with the Ouija board and the spirit world and everything, and and Rhonda, who is also uh, a psychic medium, she's been on our podcast also as ron has and she's here right now with us because we just recorded our halloween episode uh (laughs) you both had advice uh for him uh one thing you said that he needs to uh well you know man up essentially and tell the spirit like hey you're not welcome get out
29: yeah yeah just kind of reclaim you have to show them that you're not afraid of them um i think you know there's a lot of those that will feed on fear. I mean, mm-hmm. even people do that. Right. right. So, um, yeah, basically, I mean, you know, sure you can do all the witchy stuff. Mm-hmm. You can do the salt, you can do the sage, you can do all that. But if you're scared, none of it'll, that is doing a it'll thing because it. it'll it's feed just tools. Off of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have the power, not the sage, not the salt. Cause that's physical. Something physical cannot keep away something spiritual. So, uh, well, and well,
24: he did take the advice and he said that, uh, it stopped. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, he took uh, both your advice and Rhonda's, and Rhonda's had stuff about, you know, uh, wrapping the board, salt, you know, cleansing this, but also, also, like, saying, hey, look. Uh, and he he told me that uh, that what has stopped, he sort of misses it a little bit. You know
29: what? I know exactly what he's saying. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Because I would Dude. be, like, happy it stopped. Because, I mean, it sounds frightening and terrifying. Mm-hmm. No. It's, it's strange. It's, ama- it's amazing what you get used to, because when I lived in that house for 20 years, and it was a constant thing that it literally becomes your normal. It is not paranormal anymore. So, and I remember even thinking if they ever left, like all of a sudden just left, I would be devastated. Like I literally, you've literally... Have some weird relationship, mm-hmm. but you it's become just like, come
24: used to yeah. them okay. being there,
29: right? Yeah, Ronnie, you lived in a house
24: for a uh, very long time that was uh, well haunted, yeah. And you had you recorded EVPs all the time, had oh, situations God. so things you, getting e- stolen.
29: Uh, I yeah. know exactly what he's saying. Yeah,
24: so even for you, though, like you would miss it, yeah, uh, when it did go away. You Interesting, do. you definitely do. Oh, I don't. I don't know where I fit on that that scale. I feel like it, I'd be
29: okay. Like really when I with no the Shadow different. Man
24: incident, I was okay to never see it again.
29: It's really no different than if sat and I if we we sat here and talked every day for you know months, right. and then all of a sudden he never. I never see him again. And be
31: like you would still man, feel the absence go? of that person or that, yeah. Uh, yeah,
29: yeah, You get to know their voice. Like, there was a few of them that I would record that same voice again and again and mm. again, and I actually knew the sound of their voice. And I'd be like, Oh, yeah, that's just her, or that's him, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, so it really is a relationship because wow. that's really what we have here. Our yeah. spirits mm-hmm. are connected, not our bodies,
24: right? Okay. Well, let's see, what do we take away from that? Don't play the spirit board, uh, maybe uh, with would, somebody that,
29: uh, yeah, yeah, well, certain age, eight, yeah, eight. No. Uh, it's they just don't understand. That's all. Right. If, if something because
24: does he, go, oh, he didn't close the session, so that, he didn't that's close a, the portal, right? You he have opened to, it you, you have to say it. goodbye. You got to yeah. close it. Definitely do that. Uh, and I guess it's okay not to necessarily be scared if you do have some paranormal activity. Exactly.
29: It doesn't Unless mean it's that Zozo, they're trying to hurt the, the you. A the lot demon of from times, the Ouija board. <laughs> a lot of times, it's just messages. Believe it or not, I mean, it, people think that that spirit is try, going trying to harm them in some way. And no, mm-hmm. that's you know, they're just
31: trying to convey something. You just they're, need to
29: pay attention to what they're doing because yeah. there's a message behind that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious as to if she was eight years old and she wanted to get the Ouija board down when it did move. I'm wondering why that scared her.
30: Yeah.
32: Hmm. You know I know it would scare like, me. Ex- I might what, run.
29: What was she expecting, <laughs> though? You know what I mean? As yeah. an eight year old, right. like what? Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Never thought about that. Hmm. Mm.
24: Well, I hope you enjoyed this little segment. Uh, find out more about us, listen to our podcast. Just go to paranormalpunchers.com. Learn all about us. Uh, and as we always say around here, if it's not weird, it's not worth
30: checking out.
33: Season's Greetings. We are According to an Idiot, and we are honored to be occupying your ears for the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Gotta shake off the rust and get in the spooky zone. I got a few buzzwords that normally do the trick. Think candelabra. That's, a, that's what I think of to get in the spooky zone, like an old candelabra in a castle. A wolf howls in the distance.
23: I usually just think of my mom. <laughs>
33: I think of your mom to get in a different mood.
23: Oh, fun!
33: So, for those who haven't already skipped ahead to the next story, (laughs) hey! Uh,
23: I'm Kaylee.
33: And I'm Jeremy.
23: And we're gonna take you on a nice Halloween campfire journey into the past.
33: The past. Man, I love the past. Chronologically, I've spent most of my life there. (laughs) So, let's gather around the campfire, roast a couple of marshmallows, but... Make sure they don't get too dark, because this story is dark enough.
23: I like marshmallows black, actually. I like them charred.
33: That is easily one of your worst qualities.
23: Woo! Okay, anyways.
33: The story we have to share tonight, or today, or whenever you're listening to this, is... Kaylee.
23: I prepared a story all about Washington Irving Bishop. Bishop was born to an occult-loving family in 1855 which is kind of a nice, fun upbringing. Yeah, uh, a f- he-
33: cute way to phrase that. An occult-loving family.
23: <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, his family was very, like, into black magic-y type stuff. And he later became a famous mentalist or mm. thought reader, what that means is he uses subtle cues from people and he reads that to interpret what they're thinking.
6: Or
33: like tells, like in poker. Yeah, exactly. Where you can tell what someone's hand is like because of gestures like quirks. and quirks.
23: He had his start into the occult as a manager of Anna Ava Fay's spiritualistic acts. Anna Ava Faye uh, was actually like a psychic Right, she
33: was like a fake medium, essentially. Right,
23: she was a pretty famous psychic at the time, Mm -hmm. and she would go around and do like lots of shows and tours and things. Probably
33: a lot of seances, I'd imagine. Yeah, like this is around the time of spiritualism.
23: Right, she claimed she could communicate with spirits, and so she was really popular at that time. And he worked as a manager. Uh, He kind of learned all of her tricks of the trade, essentially, of like being a psychic. So he figured out pretty early on that it was all a hoax. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had different ways to manipulate the audience. Obviously,
33: there's a mystery in the universe, but I think for the yeah. most part mm-hmm. during the age of spiritualism, this giant influx of these psychics, most of them were just like mentalists. Yeah. They weren't telling people that they were reading their their physical tells they were just saying oh i know this because spirits are telling me this information or whatever
23: right after he learned that she was basically a hoax he got really mad and exposed her to the media and he became an anti-spiritualistic performer and he wrote a book exposing all the trick methods used by psychics so this is kind of where he turns from occult into mentalist a
33: real buzzkill yeah
23: learn this trick all the psychics hate him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, psychics hate him. Uh, so he became a mentalist after this. His performances were even more intense because of his trances. Hmm. So Bishop carried a card on him that read he suffered from cataleptic attacks. And he could remain unconscious in this trance for up to 52 hours and to not kill him by an autopsy.
33: What, wait, so like, it's like extreme narcolepsy?
23: Kind of you just um, pass out? Yeah, so it's actually a nervous disorder where he'll go into a deep trance and have very rigid limbs and insensitivity to pain. So even if the limbs were moved, they'll remain exactly where they were placed. So mm. just kind of think of someone in a very static, rigid position. Uh, they're not going to react to pain. They're not convulsing, but they're just kind of like Stiff stuck in one position. Yeah.
33: I get and, the same way when like, someone I don't really know touches my shoulder. Yeah. Like a back rub. Like <laughs> a <laughs>
23: Uh, so the person is unconscious and they can remain in that state for several days. Wow. At that time, they weren't really sure what caused it. Intentional trances can be induced by pressure on certain arteries by occult techniques or drugs.
33: All pretty fun.
23: Right, and he did have an occult loving family. So yep. maybe they taught him how to get in these trances or something. The reason why he got in these fits is unknown. It's not like a coma in the way that respiration or heart rate changes. It remains stable and in a normal levels. Yeah. And in psychic terms, a catalytic fit is a deliberately desired trance like state when a medium is in a state of deep hypnosis and taken over by some other intelligence, which uses the medium's body to speak and act.
33: Almost like possession, but it's like a spirit speaking through them.
23: Yeah, exactly. But uh, when coming to after the trance state, there is no memory, which kind of plays into the pop culture as well. Oh, like how to, how to get here? What right. Happened. The they last come thing to, I remember I was, okay. Yeah, like how, what happened? Okay,
33: that explains a lot of fantastical stories through history.
23: Yeah, definitely, yeah. right? Uh, it's not clear mm. still if there is a like complex inner fantasy or dream, Dream going on mm. when the person's in the trance, mm. or if it's like a total mm. unconsciousness. I don't. I guess they never thought to ask someone.
33: Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah you got any cool dreams? <laughs> oh man, I got a bunch. I was waiting for somebody to ask me that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to be a bother. But yeah, some awesome uh, dragons.
23: Right. Duh. So imagine Bishop. He's on stage. You know, it's kind of like a shtick of his. I guess he'll go into these deep trances and just kind of like pass out.
33: Yeah, I assume the audience probably sat there for about two hours and they're like, hold on, I think he's just gone.
23: Right, I think he's just dead. And that's why he had like the card on him. Right. So on May 12th, 1889, he became unconscious in one of his demonstrations while performing at a theater called the Lambs Club. He was taken upstairs to a bedroom, where he was reported to have been in a coma and died at noon the next day. Three physicians performed an unauthorized autopsy on him at a funeral home.
33: Well, someone didn't check his pockets, I have a feeling.
23: The card was never found on his body. One, one of the doctors in particular... John A. Irwin was reported to have wanted to study Wellington's brain with an autopsy for many years. Both his mother and wife both claimed that he was not dead, but in a trance while the physicians examined his body and that he was murdered by the surgical instruments.
33: Oh, my God. So So, they, they wanted to cut him open. Like yeah, they wanted There's to this doctor who's like, for years, I've wanted to look at this guy's brain. and This is the only opportunity I got.
23: Right. Exactly. So they basically scuttered him off to a funeral home so that they could do this autopsy with no one knowing. <sighs> but can you imagine like he's alive and being cut into. Well, you got to
33: wonder if he can feel all of that. Right. There's that thing with comas where it's like you can still interact with outside stimulus. Mm -hmm. Brain scans have actually shown that coma patients, certain coma patients, can react to pain as much as healthy people, which is especially disturbing when you consider what Bishop probably endured.
23: And if they do have some complex consciousness going on in that state and they aren't totally unconscious, then there has to be some nightmarish A
33: dream to relate to what's going on. Yeah, exactly.
23: So, you know, he's skipping through some fields one minute, and then the next his skull's being bashed open. He was buried in Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. As a tribute to the son she believed was murdered, his mother had the martyr carved above his name on his headstone. And it's a really popular and famous headstone in the cemetery now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people go to visit it. But yeah, it has like a gruesome ghost That's, story that, tale behind it.
19: Wow.
33: Ugh. I would hate that. would be the worst way to go out. Especially if you're somebody who was really intent on uncovering psychics. And the fact that it's all just a set of learned skills. And in the end, he was cut open by a doctor who was probably convinced that he was different and magical or something. Mm-hmm. Because that's why he wanted to look at his brain. You're
23: right. It's like crazy to me that he was like so desperate to look at this guy's brain that he just completely dismissed if he actually was dead or not. He even knew him beforehand since he wanted to get his brain. So I'm sure right. he probably knew that he had these fits oh, yeah, and trances sure. too. And
33: who knew maybe he took the card off his body.
23: My hypothesis is that they saw it and then they just disposed of it
33: probably so yeah very uh
23: interesting area
33: interesting real life spook right there not exactly a ghost or a or a monster but uh, it is in fact the monster that lives inside of us all and that's the real scary stuff. and that's the real scary stuff well i hope whoever you are you, you enjoy this story it gave you a little bit of a uh, kind of feeling.
23: Made you ponder, made you think.
33: Made you want to call your mom.
23: Made you appreciate life a little bit more. Yeah, <laughs>
33: yes, exactly, yeah.
23: <laughs> I hope you don't die by an autopsy.
33: Happy Halloween, everybody.
23: And if you did enjoy this story, make sure you check out our podcast, According to an Idiot.
33: Now back to whoever else is about to talk...
32: Hello, hillbilly horror stories, and happy Halloween from here in the UK. It's uh, Lee here from Realm of the Supernatural podcast. Uh, 31st of October was uh, something important that was meant to happen on that day. I don't like it's going to happen now. But anyway, I digress. So, Halloween, ghost stories, chills. I thought it'd be best to tell you a story which actually happened to me. A true spooky story, if you will. Okay, so this takes place when I was about 10 years old, and it was during the summer. We'd broken up from school, we was on holiday, and I came down this morning, it would have been about 9 o'clock, and I remember going to the kitchen to sort myself some cereal. As I passed the door, which is actually for a cupboard that leads under the stairs, Uh, we used to keep... um, Bits and bobs, you know, the hoover used to be under there, some coats, uh, some scarves, you know, all that kind of stuff. The door was rattling. And obviously this was unusual because this is an internal door. And there's no windows in there or anything like that. So I opened it. And to my amazement, there was a little boy in there about the same age as me. Um, what was unusual about this little boy It's not the fact that he's in the cupboard when he shouldn't have been. That he was invisible from the waist down. There was that much stuff in the in the cubbyhole itself. You couldn't have stood up there in there anyway. Um, but anyway, that didn't seem to trigger any alarm bells. Uh, looking back on it, which is interesting. But he spoke to me. Uh, we had a bit of a conversation. I can't really remember what we spoke about, but I know. Um, I wasn't afraid or anything like that, and after a short while, uh, I set out to go because uh, my friends would be waiting for me, I was going to have my cereal and go straight out to, to play like so, I shut the door and carried on about the business anyway, next day, it comes down, same situation, I'm walking past the door, it begins to rattle I open the door, this little boy is there again, so we have a conversation now this little boy to me appeared, you know, very similar age to me um, unassuming you know just a normal little boy we had this conversation and the only thing i can really tell you what we spoke about is he spoke about things that were um gonna happen in the future uh, good things um you know for my life and, and for those around me kind of thing and it gave me a little bit of knowledge about the world um and, you know etc a little bit you know, above my age if you like which and didn't come in didn't come in handy as far as i could tell but you know that's the sort of conversation we had um i would say he seemed to be well traveled uh some of the things he was talking about anyway so this went on for maybe four or five days uh, maximum this particular morning i comes downstairs door rattles so this is like say about four days later five days later i open the door and Usual um, niceties took place. Um, I said hello, he said hello. Uh, he started chatting. I started telling him what we'd been doing the day before. I think we'd had a water fight or something like that uh, in the street the day before. And I remember telling him about this. Uh, and I had to explain to him what that meant. He didn't seem to grasp, you know, looking back on it now, it seems unusual, but he didn't seem to grasp what I meant about, you know, the water pistols, the super soakers, that kind of thing, the, 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 the uh, water balloons. Anyway. I remember telling him, and at some point in the conversation, he produced, from underneath his jacket, um, the easiest way to describe him, or the best way to give you an idea of what he looked like, was he was, you know, a young boy, same age as me, but he was wearing, like, a cloak and a hood. Um, Like a, you know, like you see, like, wizards wearing, that kind of thing. And it was uh, purple, like a purple silk, and it had stars and moons um on it so he offers me this drink um and the you know it looks like uh what you see like uh, in a science lab the test tube um, with some clear liquid in it um well, it might have been silvery but it was very you know, more or less uh, translucent more or less li- uh, clear and he offers me this Drink, and he asked me to drink it, and I I said no. You know, I'm going to have my breakfast, and uh, you know, I don't want it. And uh, we spoke a bit more, and he offered me it again, and and I still said, you know, you know, no, I'm not interested. You know, I don't want it. Um, And we spoke a little bit more, and he offered me it a third time. And and I, get, I refused and then he and then he started getting a bit more a little bit more aggressive. He said, you know, you got you know you got to drink it. I said, no, I don't really I don't really I don't want it. And he said, no, you got to drink it. And I said, no, I don't want it. And then he he started to sort of lean forward into me and sort of almost press it into me and say, no, drink it, drink it. Uh, and I said, no, I don't want to drink it. And with that, he started to transform before my very eyes, and he he became, which I presume he was from the beginning, but. He became like, um, if you remember the film Gremlins, I think that's the best way to describe what I could see in front of me was this um, gremlin-type creature um, with, you know, of sharp teeth. His skin was grey, uh, like, like a battleship grey-type colour, though. It wasn't green. Um, and his, his eyes became inflamed and enraged and red. Um, I mean glowing red. I mean, you know uh, His body was that of a goblin and you know Everything fell away apart from this this goblin standing in front of me and and he was really raging at me to drink this drink and Obviously at that point I was a little bit scared. So I Remember backing up and slamming the door shut And holding the door for what felt like, you know an eternity But it was probably only a few seconds and the door is you know was shaking backwards and forwards and I had both hands on it and my, whole, my whole body weight against it and I was screaming at the top of my lungs you know because there's people in the house me me, me parents etc and I was screaming at the top of my lungs for someone to come and help me and after a, you know only a few seconds probably no longer than 30 seconds the door just stopped and it was all still and there was no sound and then I remember just going he went straight out into the backyard and straight down, uh, straight down to my friend's house and told them what had happened. And obviously, they didn't believe me, but I told them anyway. It was probably about a week later. I think I got the courage to open that door, and I opened the door, and there was nothing in there apart from the, you know, the bits and bobs that was in there, the Hoover, etc. And that's really where it dawned on me that no one could have been stood in there, you know, because of all the debris that was in there, it would have been impossible. Um, In later years, doing research, I've found that some stories, ancient stories now from Ireland uh, tell of these fairy folk, or the wee folk, and a very similar story comes out in those where they try to entice you to eat or drink something from them, from the fairy realm. And the legend has it, if you do drink or eat, you become a fairy. So luckily for me, I chose not to drink that day. And I'll never know what would happen if I did. So, just be careful when you're out there Halloween trick-or-treating, you know. You get some food offered to you, some drink, you just never know. You might become A fairy. Well, thank you for taking the time to listen to me. From everybody here at the Realm of Supernatural podcast, we really wish you a fantastic Halloween. Good night.
0: Triple H Media Also known as Hillbilly Horror House Here at Triple H We bring you the things that scare you the most To the comfort of wherever you may be But we're not all Just scares and screams (laughs) No We also bring you Laughs and zombies We have a new show That will be released in the next few months Called And Beyond How would you feel if you woke up in a spaceship and ended up on an alien planet? How would you survive? The natives are hunting you down and you know nothing about the planet. Join us soon to see how Adam does it. But for now, enjoy this quick horror episode. And if you like what you hear, search and subscribe to Heal the Horror House. A special thanks to Jill and Gina from Always Never Right Podcast for playing the parts in this episode.
6: Let me go! Stop!
0: (laughs) You're already mine. All you have to do is submit.
28: I will never submit to a creature like you. (laughs)
0: Your mother never submitted either. And look what happened to her. (laughs) Tell me what happened to your dear sweet mother. Tell
28: me. She died. She died because of you, you son of a bitch.
6: And her blood tasted so
0: good. Almost as good as
28: that. Of a virgin. You sick freak. You have
0: no idea. Now,
28: come to me. Never!
6: Come to me,
28: or your roommate dies. Don't you touch her. <laughs> your choice. If you touch her, I will kill you!
0: The choice has been made. It's time to wake up and face your decision. <laughs>
28: Oh, God. Lisa. Lisa no. Oh, Lisa wake up. Lisa. Nurse. Nurse, somebody. Oh. door's open. Guys? Really? Chains?
0: She was out of control.
28: I'm sure she was. Her roommate was murdered last night.
0: We should be calling the police.
28: Was there any blood on her? No. Her bed? No. Her side of the room? No. Anywhere? No. That's because she didn't do it. Now get those damn things off of her. That's
13: really not a good- (sighs) Now.
0: Yes, ma'am. Regret this
13: kitten.
28: Meet me in my room in an hour and I'll show you regret, bitch. That's all, Jack. You can leave now.
13: Hmm. Good luck, Doc.
28: Please, Rebecca, have a seat. No, I'm good. That wasn't a request. Are we going to have a problem, Rebecca? (sighs) No, ma'am. Wanna talk about it? About what? Come on, Rebecca, you have to talk about this. How many does this make now? Three. Three? Let me guess. The boogeyman in your dreams did it again. he's real. I don't care what you say. He's real. He is real. All right. All right, calm down. Why don't you believe me? Come on, freak. You're done. Get your damn hands off me. Get off me! Nurse! Nurse, just do it. No, 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 please don't. Please don't. I can't sleep. Please don't let me to sleep. Do it. Ow. Why? Why, why, would, you, why would you do this? You're going to kill me. You're going to kill me. This is all your... Take her to her room. Be sure to use the restraints.
0: Yes, ma'am.
28: to skip the games and get your ass out here now.
6: <laughs> you called my love?
28: I'm done with all this crap and I'm done with you.
6: You're done when I say
0: you're done. Now tell me what I want to hear.
28: Never. I told you I would never submit to you.
0: How many us will have to die? Kitten?
16: What did you call me? You
28: heard me. Now get over here. No, no, get off me.
0: Come now, Kitty. Just
28: give in.
0: You know this is what you want. No. You know this is what you want. Just Just submit submit to me. me. Submit to me.
28: Somebody help me!
6: (laughs) Submit to
28: me, and I will help you. No!
0: He is having his way with you, and I, I can make it stop. Just submit to me!
6: Okay. okay, not going to
0: say the whole thing.
6: This is my, I submit to you. Oh, please make a stop.
0: Your wish
6: is
28: my command. Get off me!
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. How 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 are you doing this, you freak? Get me down from here. Get me down!
13: How?
6: (laughs) It's not her. Whoa!
13: Who the hell Uh, uh, are?
28: Rebecca, I don't know how you did what you did. I didn't do it. Then who did? Help me to help you. I was tied up, remember? You left me as live bait for a rapist. No, that's not true. I had no idea he was going to... He didn't like that. Who didn't like that? Who didn't like it, Rebecca? Him. Him who? Who? him behind you no no
6: <laughs> <laughs>
0: i hope you enjoy that little show <laughs> If you enjoyed this, please search and subscribe to Hillbilly Horror House and always watch your back.
25: Hey everyone, this is David Flora from the Blurry Photos Podcast. The following is a creepy little story I read on one of my recent episodes. If you'd like to hear more ghost stories like this one, I've done a ton over the years. Just visit blurryphotos.org and go to my archives page to find more. And if you want to hear more in-depth stuff on topics like cryptids, true crime, conspiracies, weird history, or even me losing my cool about flat earth theory, check out Blurry Photos. I'm everywhere, fine podcasts are free. Thanks again to Jerry, Tracy, and Ninja. Enjoy the story. The Storm Growing up, I've always loved thunderstorms. There's something about heavy rain, the boom of thunder, the flashes of lightning that grips a very primal fight-or-flight fear in me. And I live for every second of it. That's why I decided to put my new phone to use and record slow-mo snippets of the storm, hoping to get some cool footage to show off on a few subreddits I follow. I had no idea what I was about to find. I slipped my phone in a waterproof case and set it up on a tripod in my backyard. I switched to slow-mo, pressed record, and hurried back inside. I carefully framed about half the shot to be of the sky and the other half of my yard. I figured it'd be really cool and even a little spooky to see the lightning illuminate the grass, trees, and our garden ornaments. Back inside, I turned off the TV and all the lights and just soaked in the ambience of the storm. The rain pounded against the glass while the thunder rattled the panes. Brilliant flashes of lightning bathed the yard in light shooting wicked shadows in its wake, leaving behind only darkness. The storm was everything I hoped it would be. I only hoped my footage would hold up. After a good twenty minutes, I figured I'd probably recorded the best parts of it, and that I should bring it back inside before I run out of memory. I dashed outside, grabbed the tripod and phone, and tried to slide open the door and move inside all in one swift motion. Regrettably, This resulted in me throwing the door open and slipping into the cold, muddy water just a foot from my warm, welcoming house. It didn't even cross my mind to hurry inside. I was too preoccupied with the fact that I might have cracked my phone to care that I was getting soaked. I inspected the camera lens, all good, no scratches, and flipped it to check the main screen. All clear. Good. Inside we go. After a quick change of clothes, I hooked my phone up to my computer and started to go through the footage. The first minute and a half were just rain noises, some thunder booming in the distance, and pitch blackness. When I saw the first lightning flash, I felt a chill run down my spine. At the end of my yard, there was, very clearly, someone who appeared to be standing still, facing away from the camera. I froze playback The burst of light was enough to show matted hair and ripped clothes smeared with mud But not much else I know there was nobody out there My yard is fenced in The gate, old and rusted, screeches when opened and I would have heard something There's nothing out there taller than two feet at the most Other than a few trees What the hell was I seeing? I resumed playback with the next flash I could see the figure moving I could make out a little more then it appeared to be an elderly woman she didn't look like one of my neighbors with the next bolt she's not too much farther but is shuffling around slowly as if she's lost or confused I ran downstairs and turned on the backyard porch light I scanned through the rain and saw nothing but my yard. There was nobody there. So I returned to my computer. I continued to see this elderly woman with each burst of lightning. She appeared to be shambling in circles, but not close enough for the camera to render any detail. Finally, about 16 minutes in, she wandered closer to the camera. A lightning flash from the front of the house lit her features, and the camera took a split second to focus on her. Her eyes were a dull and cloudy grey. Her hair, disheveled and beset with clumps of dirt, framed her gaunt and rotting face. Patches of flesh were missing from her cheeks and neck. A giant chunk appeared to have been ripped from her torso which allowed her ribs to catch and reflect the light. They guarded an empty cavern. For what felt like an eternity, I couldn't rip my eyes away. Once again, darkness fell on the yard. The video continued as I sat, my mind reeling, trying to comprehend what I saw. I watched the whole yard as I recorded and saw no one. Did I miss her? Or was this a glitch? Or a prank? It can't be. That makes no sense. Then from my speakers, I heard my door slide open. She stopped in her tracks and craned her head, looking towards the source of the noise. By the time I see the feed lift up and move from its spot, she was nowhere in sight. I nearly jumped from my chair when the video feed slammed into the ground. I had forgotten I dropped it. I saw a close-up of my face as I scanned the camera lens. Something brushed my shoulder, barely out of focus. The video flipped as I inspected the front screen and showed her slip into the open door, into my house, disappearing into the dark. I heard the door close behind me and the video ended on a shot of the empty living room. I shut my screen off. I unplugged my phone and threw it in the trash. I sat still, a thought scraping at my mind, a feeling I couldn't ignore. I felt cold.
20: I'm Zinger from the podcast Zing This. My podcast mainly focuses on pop culture and fun stuff like that, but every now and then cryptids, the paranormal, stuff like that do creep in every now and then because, as you know, pop culture and the paranormal kind of go hand in hand with each other. So the what I'm doing today is kind of more of a paranormal story, but I'm doing it from a different point of view. This may be something you all might have heard about before, or maybe you haven't, but I think it's safe to say you've never hold it, heard it told from this point of view. So the year is 1954, and it is the month of July. man boards a plane in Europe and is flying to Tokyo, Japan. The man has done this several times. It's nothing out of the ordinary for him. He's on the flight, he's, you know, relaxing, enjoying his flight and everything. Gets to the airport, gets his bag, he only had a carry-on, because he's there on business. He's there for a quick business trip, get in, get out. He's done it a couple times before, no big deal. Well, as he gets the customs and everything, he shows them their passport, and the Japanese officials stop him. And they're looking at the passport, and they're looking at him. Picture matches. Everything seems to be in order. Minus... The passport says he's from a country called Tered. Yes. A country of Tered in Europe. Well... I don't know if you know this, dear listener. That country does not exist. In our world. But in this man's world... He grew up there. He's lived there his whole life. That country has been around for almost a thousand years. And he's never been had to deal with something like this before. He's taken aback that these men would dare question one the legitimacy of of his country and, you know, kind of it's he's taking it a little bit in in the in the honor of, like, you know, how how dare you say my country doesn't exist? It's a great country. It's it's lasted a thousand years. So the um, gentlemen who are looking over the passport flip through it, notice some very odd things in it. He's been to many different European countries. The stamps all check out, and then they notice he's been to Tokyo. He's been to Japan before, and all the stamps. Check out the exact way they're supposed to Now the man of course Is saying that He's you know supposed to be there He has some business Dealings there so he's like You can call it's this business And everything and this is the hotel I have the reservations at As he you know Takes out all of his stuff so that they can look it over He takes out his wallet And the money in his wallet Is from European countries His checkbook has an address for Tourette, this once again country that they never heard of. So they, of course, kind of take the man aside, and he's he's, he's getting a little frustrated now, because he doesn't understand why, one, they're not just letting him go through, he's done this before, and also why they keep telling him his country doesn't exist. So they bring out a map of Europe. And he's like, this 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 will solve it. He goes, Maybe they're just not familiar with European geography and everything. So he he's sitting there and he um he's he's very he's very proud because he sees exactly where he needs to point to and he points to points right exactly to where to where it is. He's like, It's right there. He points to the country. Well, the men take, turn the map around, look at it, look at him again, and then They say, they say, sir, that is the Principality of Andorra. And the man laughs and goes, okay, this is getting old. I've never heard of this country called Andorra that you speak of, or a Principality of Andorra. And as he looks back at the map, he can see clearly the name above, over the country he pointed at, his proud home of Tared. Is the Principality of Andorra. Well. A gentleman comes back. Because he gave him of course the information. To check on his. His hotel and everything. And. He comes back that. There's no reservation at that hotel. Under his name. The company he's claiming to. Um, to work for. Has no knowledge of him. And even though he opens his briefcase that he brought along. It's his only carry-on. it has tons of paperwork. It verifies that he works there. All this stuff. But yet, when they get in touch with somebody from the company, they said they've never heard of him. And the business, of course, that he's going to go visit in Tokyo doesn't exist. Well... The man is very frustrated and just wants to get this all sorted out and get along and get on his way. He has a very important meeting in the morning and wants to get, of course, on his way and get this all done with. Well, they, the customs officials are very confused and want to get this sorted out too. They just don't want some random person coming into the country that's, according to them, got a ton of false information. But yet, a lot of stuff is checking out. So they put him up in a hotel. They also assign guards to him. To keep an eye on him. Why they continue to look into this. Well the man goes in. Of course. Gets on the bed. Kind of sits there and is very confused. But he's like you know what. Maybe this is just a misunderstanding. He gets his paperwork together. Lays out the clothes he's going to wear. For the next day. Has everything ready to go. And you know. Looks outside real quick. Sees that the guards throw out there and goes, lays down, and goes to sleep. It's been a long day. He's been through a flight. He's in a different time zone. And he just wants to go to sleep. Well, the man wakes up the next day and walks out. There's no guard outside. And on top of that, the hotel doesn't know how he got there. Why he's checked into that room. Why he has a room key for that room. But they just guess. Someone must have mistaken something. And he's very confused. On why the guards and stuff aren't there. His only guess is. They might have figured it out in the middle of the night. Well. He hails a taxi. Of course has it drive him. He arrives at the company. That the people he spoke to last night. Said didn't exist. And it's it's right there. He goes in. Does what he needs to do for his business stuff. Goes back to the airport to, you know, board the plane the next day. Walks up to the counter. Gets a, of course, gets his ticket to go home. Of course, not straight to, straight to Red, but to one of the neighboring countries. And, of course, he'll take a quick trip to his home. And they stamp his passport and say, I hope you enjoyed your trip to Tokyo, sir. And he just kind of thinks of this whole situation as just being something that was a little strange, a little out of the ordinary. But that's his side of the story. I think you know our side of the story. Anyways, thank you guys for listening to this. Uh, if you want more stuff from Zygnus, of course, go check out Zygnus, at Z-E-N-G, this, on most major podcatchers. And, of course, as always... Happy Halloween, and thank you once again for letting me be spooky with you guys.
16: Hey y'all, I'm Donna, and I'm Carrie, and we are Paranormal Chicks, and we are so
34: excited to be on this episode of Hillbilly Horror Stories.
16: Yes, thank you so much, Jerry and Tracy, for having us on this spooktacular collaboration. We are truly honored to be a part of this. Right? And we have an amazing
34: story to share with y'all. It is so creepy. The story we're going to share with y'all was published April 25th, 2019. It's called The Living History Project, and it's by Christine O'Neill. One of my least favorite parts about being a middle school teacher is the bullshit living history assignments we give at the end of every school year. Kids are supposed to sit with their grandparents and videotape, voice record, or transcribe their oldest memories for posterity and for an easy way to bring up their GPA. I have been doing this for 17 years, and when I collected the projects this time around, I assumed they would be as dull, if not duller than usual, This had not been a particularly bright class. So I went home, poured myself a glass of wine, and prepared for a long night of I only owned two pairs of pants when I was your age. And my brother got beat with a newspaper for hitting a baseball into a neighbor's yard. And of course, these projects were peppered with innocent old-person comments that were so horribly sexist and racist that you just had to laugh. Now, I had a girl in my class whom I will call Olivia. She was pudgy, quiet, and proved herself a consistent B student. I expected her project to be as unremarkable as her, and perhaps that's why I was so profoundly disturbed by what I witnessed that night. Olivia had submitted two discs for some reason, so I began with the one marked interview. My screen hiccuped twice before a grainy image of a living room came into view. The place was a hoarder's hell, Olivia was curled up in an armchair, clutching a notebook, and looking like a scared animal. Across from her sat a man with a somber countenance, smoking a cigarette and staring at her expectantly. Go ahead, a woman's voice whispered from behind the camera. Olivia's owlish eyes flashed towards the screen and then back to the man. I'm here with my great uncle Stephen, she began almost inaudibly. He's going to tell us about his oldest memory from being in the army. Great Uncle Stephen looked like he'd rather be in a goddamn trench at the moment, but he waited patiently for the questions to begin. Not surprisingly, Olivia read verbatim from the suggested question sheet I had handed out to the students. He answered her curtly. Once or twice, I heard her mother whisper, Speak up, Olivia, from behind the camera. Typical boring shit. So I was intrigued when Olivia set down the notebook and asked, Did you like being in the Army? That was totally off script. Great Uncle Stephen emitted a chain smoker's wheeze. Nope. Glad to get out of my town, though. Where'd you go? Balkans. Uh huh, she said. I doubted she knew what the Balkans were, and my suspicions were confirmed when she asked, Was Balkans very different from here? Yes. Mom cleared her throat from behind the camera, perhaps encouraging Great Uncle Stephen to be a little more forthcoming. But Olivia seemed genuinely interested. Uncle Stephen. What was your very worst memory from the army? The old man crushed his cigarette in the ashtray and then slowly lifted himself out of the chair. I'll be right back, he mumbled. The camera shut off.
16: When the screen flashed back on, great-uncle Stephen had several pieces of paper in plastic sleeves laid atop all of the crap sitting on his coffee table. I was a kid when I enlisted, he said, looking at Olivia. Your brother's age, he told her. Olivia nodded. I never saw combat. Both of my deployments were in cities in Eastern Europe that had been destroyed by civil wars. Everything was a mess. I felt like a janitor for fuck's to- sake. <clears throat> Mom coughed. Great Uncle Stephen sighed and looked at his paper. My unit was assigned to a school that had been obliterated by all the violence. Broken windows, caved-in rooms, and for some reason... The part that got me the most was that the school had been like this for years before we got there. No one had lifted a finger to fix it. I saw kids walk by it on their way to go beg for money for whatever shit they did.
34: The camera dipped back towards the floor as I heard Mom whisper harshly at Great Uncle Stephen. I couldn't make out what she was saying, but it wasn't hard to imagine. Do you want to hear the goddamn story or not? I heard him bark in response. Then you better let me tell it how I want. Mom, Olivia chimed, please stop interrupting. Are you presenting this in front of the class? No, Mom. We're just handing it in to the teacher. I'm sure he's heard the word shit before. Great Uncle Stephen contributed helpfully. I wasn't a he, as a matter of fact, but other than that, the statement was accurate. The camera was lifted, and after a couple of blurry focus adjustments, the shot was the same as before. Ah, I'm talking too much anyway, he grumbled. He lifted the piece of paper in his hand close to his face. In the basement, I found this letter. I didn't know what it said, but I had a buddy of mine translate it. So I'm going to read it now, and then I'll tell you what I saw in that basement. A chill ran down my spine. Mom zoomed into great-uncle Stephen and his letter. His palsied hands trembled as he held up the letter. This is what he read.
16: Dear Sir, I never loved my country. So many of these skirmishes are born from patriotism, a power struggle for the shards of a once-great empire. "'but I do not care what name my home has on a map. "'This fighting is senseless, "'and I stay as far away from it as I can. "'It was not these attacks and the disorganized violence "'that took the lives of my wife and child. "'It was illness. "'Mercifully, it happened quickly for the baby. "'Nadia suffered for longer. "'I watched in horror knowing I could do nothing for them.' "'My only solace is that I was there for them every step of the way. "'I stopped going to work one day, and no one came after me. "'I doubt they noticed I was gone. "'Since the school was simply across the field, visible from my window, "'it would have been easy to go for a few hours each day "'and come home quickly to care for them. "'But what was the point? "'I was as useless to the world as I was to my family.' I tried to take Nadia to the hospital, but the journey was too long and taxing. I brought her home and she died that night. After Nadia and the baby were gone, well, I don't remember much, I didn't leave my hovel, barely ate and slept, felt many times of taking my own life. Tempting though, as it was, I felt paralyzed by my own helplessness. The one thing that kept me sane was my radio. I never turned it off once. Even though I didn't listen to the words being said, in fact, the channel I got the clearest was in English, I think, which I don't speak a lick of, but the voices, the music, and the true knowledge that life existed beyond this violent city sustained me. I have no idea how much time passed before I saw the light of day again. I was dizzy from hunger, so finding food was my priority. My radio came with me, of course. Since I first hold myself up, it has gone everywhere with me. It talks to me as I sleep and as I wake. I don't know what it's saying, but I know I would die without it. Once I had some water and food, it occurred to me that the only thing left to do was to go back to work. So I did. The following morning, I simply returned to the school where I was a janitor and got back to work. Nobody made a big deal of it. Like I said, Nadia had been sick for a long time, and those who worked at the school knew it. I appreciate that no one had pestered me to come back to work during the hardest days of my life. The teachers never said much to me, but we smiled at each other in the halls, and that mutual respect was perhaps the reason I decided to come back at all. The place had gone to the dogs without me, so I simply grabbed my broom and rags from the closet and set to cleaning. Everyone is grateful to have me back, I know. And the best part is that nobody minds my radio. I bring it with me everywhere and keep the volume low enough to not disrupt the students. No one has ever complained. In fact, I suspect they like it. The schoolhouse is not very big, but does require a lot of maintenance. The floors are always sticky and stained, so I spend most of my time mopping. Kids make messes. I guess that's why I'm still in business. Sometimes I have to move things around to make sure I get every spot on the floor beautiful and clean, but I take pride in that. And the repairs. The school always needs tune-ups here and there, and I am happy to help. Some days I'm reconstructing a desk that broke as I whistle along with the radio. Other times I handle more serious structural issues. Days when I have work like this, I feel truly instrumental, like a cog in a larger machine. How could this school survive without me? It took me a long time, but I once again feel that I have purpose. There is a larder behind the school that is full of preserved food. In lieu of payment, I'm allowed to take as much food as I need. That arrangement is fine. What would I do with money anyway? I used to bring the food back to my home, just one field away from the school. But when I started sleeping in the basement, no one seemed to notice. This school is special to me, and I cannot leave it unguarded. When I am besieged with memories of my wife and baby, I turn up the volume of the radio to drown out such thoughts. It works for me every time, except this morning. Because this morning, I woke up to dead silence. I frantically examined the radio to see what had happened. I honestly cannot tell you how many days in a row I have been using it. Did it simply live out its life and die naturally? I have spent the entire day trying to fix it. Most of this time, I have been crying. I am losing my mind without it. I have given myself until sundown. If I cannot fix it by then, I am going to take my life. I am writing this because the sunlight is starting to die and I know what my fate shall be. I have thought about taking one last walk through the halls of my school, saying goodbye to the students and teachers. I know I will be missed, but I cannot bring myself to leave this room. I cannot go anywhere knowing that my radio is dead in here. There are no more tears in me. It feels like now I can't catch my breath. I vomited what little food I had in my stomach, and I'm growing dizzy again, like I did after Nadia died. I am not long for this world. But before I take my life, I have closed the door to this room and stuck a chair beneath the handle. It is the only room in the basement and has a small casement that lets just enough light in for me to see what I'm doing. If anyone is kind enough to come looking for me, they should not be met with this gruesome sight. Perhaps they will see that the door is blocked, smell my rotting body, and simply forget I ever existed. But I have placed both my radio and this note outside the door. Kind sir, if you are reading this, I have one humble request. Please fix it. Save my radio. It did not deserve to die in its sleep, and I am ashamed that I cannot revive it. Now I'm ready to join Nadia and little Ludmilla in heaven. I hope this school can find another janitor who loves and cares for it the way I do. The hour is now. Do not forget my radio. Stanislav
34: When Mom zoomed back out, Olivia had tears in her eyes. Thank you for sharing, Uncle Stephen, Mom said. Her voice choked. I think we have enough. Wait, Olivia chirped. He said there's more. What did you find? Before Uncle Stephen could open his mouth, the image disappeared. My jaw dropped. Was that it? What did great uncle Steven see? I promptly remembered that there was a second disc. This one was unmarked, but I hoped it contained the rest of the interview. There was no video, only audio. The voice that started up was Olivia's. Hi, Miss Garrity. I'm sorry about my mom, but she refused to record the rest of what my uncle was saying. But I asked him to continue and secretly recorded the story as a voice memo on my phone. I remember you said earlier this year that history is written by the people who win wars. She sucked in a breath and commits crying. But everyone's history is important. Even if they are sad, pathetic people. And even if they never won a single thing in their life. I haven't slept through the night since I finished the project. But you have to hear what my uncle has to say. There were tears in my eyes too. The sincerity in her words was beautiful. I was so flattered that she had remembered some trite phrase I threw around because it's what my history teacher said to me. Before I got too sappy over it, the audio began again. Fine, came Mom's frustrated voice. If you want to hear the rest of the story, fine, but it's not appropriate for a school project. Let me finish, Great Uncle Stephen snapped. If it's too much for you, help yourself to a snack in the kitchen, but Olivia wants to know what happened. I heard her mother mumble something and walk away. Olivia and her uncle were alone. I imagined her looking at him expectantly. So did you find the radio, or did it get ruined when the school got blown up? He rasped, and I heard the distinct click of a lighter. That letter, he began slowly, had a date on it. What date? She inquired hungrily. It was dated two weeks before we started rebuilding the school. Didn't you say the school had been destroyed like two years ago? Yes, replied Great Uncle Stephen. It had been. There was silence as I felt goosebumps on my arms. The images that came to my mind were almost too overwhelming to express, but great-uncle Stephen put them into words effortlessly. Clearly, he had spent his whole life thinking about it. This man, this Stanislav, went to a vandalized, falling-apart schoolhouse and cleaned up blood and rubble like it was spilled drinks and dust. He smiled at dead bodies in the hallway and believed they were smiling back at him because they liked his radio. He moved around corpses so he could sweep the ground under them. The roof was half collapsed, so when it rained, he must have gotten soaking wet but was so oblivious that he didn't even feel a thing. I could hear Olivia crying steadily. I found the larder he was talking about. It was all pickled, preserved food that probably tasted like shit. Most of the stuff was moldy. Did did you see the dead body? Yes, hanging from the ceiling, but still amazingly lifelike. He wasn't rotting away. This hadn't happened years ago. Did he look peaceful? She asked. A chord of desperation in her voice. Couldn't tell you. The smell was rank, and his face was blue, and his eyes were bulging, like this. I imagined him demonstrating. And the radio? Olivia wept. I heard Great Uncle Stephen take a long drag of his cigarette. It was there, all right, and it was still on.
16: Wow, that was heavy. Heavy. And sad, and scary, and... Emotional, and all the things. And I feel like it's kind of... Like how we say the scariest things are the real life
34: monsters.
16: Monsters. Yes.
34: Thank y'all so much for listening to this amazing story from Creepypasta. If you want to hear more creepy stories about all the things paranormal and true crime, check us out every Monday everywhere you get your podcasts.
16: Yes. And if you want to share one of your creepy stories with us, we do have a listener episode that we do every other Thursday. So you can send us all your stories to aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. And remember, creep it real and, and don't get scared. scared.